The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order. Get on the path and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And welcome back to a solid seven podcast, a better than average podcast, if I do say so myself. And I always do. I am, of course, your host, Kale. And here with me this week, a, a longtime listener and supporter of the podcast, uh, but a first time guest, Mr. Gabe Steinmeier. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Kale. Thank you, Solid Seven family, for. Uh for having me. Yeah, dude, you've been an avid listener for a while, so it's uh, it's cool to have you on this side of the microphone for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate it. It's been it's been fun. I've really enjoyed just hearing the 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 growth and just the different takes and exposed me to a lot of things. So I'm happy to support Solid 7, happy to be a listener and just yeah. Yeah. Excited right to be here. On. Well, we appreciate you, man. So, so here's the deal. Um, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, a lot of it's not fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, Gabe was kind enough when uh, things started popping off uh, in Israel um, back a, a little over a week ago now. As you're listening to this, um, I kind of connected right away with uh, one of our regulars, uh, Professor Rebecca Strangarity, professor, pastor, whatever title she feels like using on any given day, um, who has spent significant time in Israel. And uh, uh, she mentioned, you know, you guys connected. That's where you guys met. That's how you came to know the podcast was, was through Becca and, uh, and met with her during your time uh, living and studying in Israel. She's like, why don't we bring Gabe in? I'm like, yeah, perfect. And uh, we didn't release it as a podcast episode, but we just hopped on and did, you know, like 20, 30 minutes um, gut reaction from the two of you, uh, you know, having lived in mm -hmm. the space, lived in the culture, lived with the people. Um, and then, you know, you having this, this added degree, this added level of knowledge built in where, uh, you know, it's not like you just studied abroad or, you know, you just went and lived and experienced the culture for a while and were enjoying the Israeli nightlife, but you were actually there obtaining your master's in Middle Eastern history. Um, and so I, I just, yeah. I feel like right now that's such an important perspective, right? Because it's, this isn't a new conflict. This isn't a new issue. And to have any understanding of what's happening right now, any legitimate understanding, I feel like you got to run the tape all the way back. Uh, yes. No, I, yeah, I did not just go and uh, spend some time partying in the clubs in Tel Aviv. Um, I went and did my master's in Middle Eastern studies. So history, politics of the Middle East. Uh, we basically, started at the rise of Islam with Muhammad and his conquering of the area and came all the way up to present day. And that was uh, my degree. I was in Israel for about four years in total. First part of that in school, doing the degree. And then the second half, uh, 
working with a couple different uh, organizations that were based in Israel. And yeah, so I spent a significant amount of time there, really dive deep into the history and politics of the region. Uh, my focus was mostly on um, Iran and the Gulf states and more nationalist movements, but we definitely spent a significant amount of time experiencing the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict and looking at it. Right on. So, uh, you know, clearly well-suited to this conversation. And so uh, the task before us this evening, should you choose to accept it, is what we're going to do is is take, you know, I don't know, two, maybe three hours and just real quickly and simply uh, and in a, in a layman's way, in an understandable way, break down all of Middle Eastern history and conflict uh, and then offer positive solutions. I think we can wrap this thing in probably, I don't know, 120, 180 minutes, and I, I think we'll be good to go. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's really, there's a lot of history, but it's not actually that complicated. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know, decades, if not centuries of diplomacy beg to differ. But as you know, as a, as a regular listener, as a supporter <laughs> of the podcast, even on a, a heady and serious episode like this, we have podcast business to get out of the way, regardless of the topic of discussion, we are, of course, always fueled by Jocko Goat here at the Solid 7 Podcast. And you came prepared, man. You are rolling deep. Uh, before we hit record, you're yeah. like, I, I didn't know how long we were going to do this or what flavor to go with. So you just you held up a whole a whole arsenal. I mean. Yeah. 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 I brought the, uh, I came prepared. I brought the Sour Apple Sniper. Of course, you got to go with the afterburner orange. I brought a uh, whoop assault watermelon, and uh, I haven't tried the new and improved pink mist, so I, I figured I had to yeah. grab that one. They were also buy one get one fifty percent off at Vitamin Shop. So, so well, I'm rocking the uh, sour apple sniper here myself. Uh, so I say we crack these open and uh, and dig in. So cheers, sir. Do it. Cheers. Listeners, you can, of course, always get your own at uh, jockofuel.com and uh, get yourself a little 10% off with our promo code SOLID7. You won't regret it. It's good stuff. So um, let, let's dig into your your background and kind of establish your bona fides here a little bit. I mean, we kind of hit on the education. Um, what, what leads a person to want to... Uh, well, one, it's a little sadistic to pursue a master's degree anyways, though these days the master's is the bachelor, yeah. so you, you kind of have to. But kind of what, what's the background and the upbringing that brings somebody to uh, wanting their master's degree, wanting it in Middle Eastern history, and wanting to attain that smack dab in the middle of the Middle East? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so first and foremost, I never wanted to do my master's degree um, when I was an undergrad. So I went to undergrad at Berry College in Rome, Georgia, uh, just outside of Atlanta, about halfway between Chattanooga and Atlanta. Um, loved my time there. I was a business management and marketing major and uh, really loved the concept of international business and looking at how different cultures uh, reacted with businesses expanding into their regions and really liked that. Um, but when I was done with undergrad, I never wanted to go into grad school. And But I got done with that, um, left Barry, moved back to South Dakota for a little bit, was looking at different job opportunities, wasn't really finding what I wanted. And my mom gave me a book by Joel Rosenberg. And I don't know, I mean, Christian culture, you might be familiar with him. He's kind of niche, 
Um, but he writes political thrillers that are also intertwined with um, and like biblical prophecy and kind of gameplays and puts out scenarios on how those things could happen in the modern political landscape. And uh, one of the books that she gave me was really focused in on the Israeli-Iranian conflict. And uh, like growing up in as a believer, uh, grew up in the Assemblies of God Church, really had like a deep interest in Israel, loved history, especially ancient history. So ancient Rome, ancient Israel, ancient Egypt were really like some of the areas I loved studying and reading more about. And uh, as I was in college, I did Mali United Nations, um, really just loved everything about overseas, but I never got to study yeah. abroad while I was in school. Um, I did the fraternity thing, everything else in college. I was just so busy. I never thought about a study abroad. And um, as I was reading this book, I just got so enthralled with the nuances of the tensions and why there was this conflict, um, why they had been friends at one point, and then Iran and Israel were now arch enemies. Why was all this happening? And uh, my brain went to, well, if I want to help businesses expand overseas, um, I should probably focus on a certain area of the world. And the Middle East was one that at that point in 2011, 2012 was not really fully understood. And I liked that area, was really intrigued by it. So I decided to um, focus on learning more about that culture, more about that area, go back to grad school or go to grad school uh, and pursue that academic understanding of the culture, of the history, of the political landscape, so that I would be able to support businesses uh, from the U.S. working there and do it in more of a culturally appropriate uh, way that respected the people, respected the culture, and was able to um, step away from just being the stereotypical American and really like, how do we honor the culture of which we're operating in business? And so found the opportunity to study abroad full time in that degree at Tel Aviv University in Tel Aviv, Israel, uh, moved over there in 2012, knew no one in country, had never been there before, but was really just knew that that's what the step was. And so, yeah, that was kind of the journey into actually being a Middle East studies individual, a, middle, uh, a person who just devoted significant amount of time to learning Arabic and reading so many academic studies yeah. on different things that had happened throughout history. So what, what's your level of understanding uh, both of uh, Arabic and Hebrew written or spoken? Well, it was better uh, a couple of years ago when I was still over there. Uh, I've tried to keep up with it a little bit. I can have some very basic conversations in the actual language spoken um, in both. Most of my um, studies for the program were in like being able to translate and read the script and then take those documents and, and read them for um, use in our papers. And so that's where more of my focus was. I am not fluent by yeah. any means. God willing, one day he will bless me with that ability to fully speak that language, um, both Arabic and Hebrew. They're both amazing languages 
beautiful languages, beautiful cultures. Um, and it would just be, it would be awesome to fully be blessed to speak those languages fluently, but I am not anywhere close yeah. to there yet. Arabic is very, very, yeah. very is hard. Your, is your understanding deep enough where um, you're, you're able to kind of understand reporting from more firsthand sources uh, in the Arabic world and, and in Israel? And, and the question behind the question there is just right off the top, I'm wondering what the difference is in the story and in the reporting you know, coming out of the region versus what's being translated through to us and the rest of the world? Mm, that's a great question. Um, my actual ear for it, having been back in the States in Western culture uh, for the last number of years is not enough to where I would know exactly what they're saying. Uh, but I have friends who still live there. I have family that's still live in country who speak Arabic and Hebrew fluently. And so I've been able to get some of that aspects from them. Um, but having like looked at that and been like when I was there was that the, the Arab spring was just beginning. We were there for the beginning of ISIS and the rise of Daesh. And so without having that full fluency, we were still being required to look at these articles, to look at these uh, videos that were coming out. So to check Twitter sources, and look for what was being said and trying to confirm that with the actual reality of things and, and what was disinformation, what was being inflated, what was being um, propped up by one side or the other. And so that aspect of being able to sift through what's being disseminated and put out there and actually look for what's truth, look for which which pictures were used from five years ago in a different country is when it was actually taken, which video was taken at a completely different area. And now it's trying to be put out as this is happening here. Um, those were things that within our program, we were able to learn those, some of those skills. Uh, do you feel uh, being in an Israeli university that what you were being exposed to and taught then um, you know, if we can, uh, you know, crib Fox News here that you were getting a fair and balanced education, a, a fair and balanced breakdown of those issues. Yeah, I would say so. I think that was one of the best things about Tel Aviv University and our professors is they really tried to present an accurate portrayal of what we were studying. They weren't trying to influence the right or to the left. I was in the classes with individuals across the political spectrum. We had very pro-Israel Zionistic individuals in the class. We had very pro-Palestine and left-leaning individuals in the class. Uh, and, and it really ranged the gambit. And so we had great discussion and conversation on these different things that we were seeing within Egypt, within Syria, within Israel itself. I have friends who are working uh, right now who are more focused on the Palestinian side of the conflict. I have friends who are actively in the Israeli military and in the Israeli political system. Uh, so that whole range of individuals who were from Israel itself, from the States, from Europe, we really were able to have a environment where all sides were presented and we were able to sift through and discuss for what was truth or what was the different perspective that one side had? What was the, like, you were able to empathize with what one side was feeling and experiencing because you had both sides in the room 
trying to discuss these matters and come to some kind of not necessarily an agreement, but an understanding of why someone could see it from that side. Gotcha. So looking at things thoroughly as a layman with, I mean, maybe just slightly better than average understanding of the, of the circumstances in the scenario over there. I, what I look at things right now and I, and I try, uh, I'm, I try to be intentional about getting, uh, you know, uh, a cross section of, of the takes of the viewpoints on this. And so if yeah. I was going to throw the viewpoints into a couple of silos, it would be from the, from the Israeli standpoint. And, and I'm intentionally saying Israeli and, and maybe we can get into this because you can't just say Jewish because it's, I think, you know, the, the common misunderstanding is that this is a purely Jewish state, and I, it's Israel's far much more multicultural than I think people would assume, uh, you know, without mm-hmm. looking into it. So from the Israeli point of view, it's, it would be that there is no separation between uh, the organization of Hamas and the Palestinian people, um, or the people that would identify mm-hmm. as Palestinian, um, that you can't separate the two. Um, and that the the one and only guiding principle of the organization of Hamas is eradicate er, eradicating the Israeli state and and to a further point the Jewish people. Um, and mm. it, were I to oversimplify the the counterpoint and the opposite side and the Palestinian viewpoint, it would be Palestinians are living in an open air prison. They have no freedom of movement, no freedom of livelihood, um, that they um, live in an apartheid state, and that's all at the hands of the Jewish people. That's all at the hands of the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, and that this is um, this is just an oppressed people rising up against their oppressor to, to, to really potentially—I I just saw somebody—I don't want to over-trivialize— that that viewpoint. Yeah. That's not my my point here with what I'm about yeah. to say. But um, I saw what I, I felt was somewhat of an apt um, analogy today. Somebody was like, um, "If you wanted to compare it to Star Wars, Israel would be the Empire." That was their take on it from the fa- mm-hmm. Palestinian point of view. They they would be the rebels yeah. that you'd yeah. be cheering for. Is how they're mm-hmm. they're viewing themselves. Um, and yeah. I think it's easy when in a soundbite culture uh, in a TikTok, Instagram, uh, you know, whatever culture where that's where we're drawing our news from and these tiny little bites in the way we're, we're so, it's so simple to silo ourselves to not hear opposing viewpoints from our own uh, when we go in and see them. Uh, you, know, you know, we can filter out what we see, what we hear. Um, I think it's easy to fall mm-hmm. into one of those two things. Um, I, I've seen man on the street yeah. interviews on both sides where well, people, there's been many protests over the past week, um, many rallies, and to to see yeah. the the lack of information inherent in some of those supporters or protesters on both sides, not not even knowing the reality of what's going on on the ground right now, was I'd like to say it was shocking, but it's just not. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and that's unfortunate. And I think that it's. I don't think it's enough to try to understand what's happening on the ground right now. I don't think it's possible to adequately understand this conflict without understanding the history of the region. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. And I would just like to, 
I think you brought up a good point in there. Some, some preconceived notions of how one side might view the other. Um, and I know from my experience being in Israel, um, and just kind of also then being stateside and seeing, um, I think you see a really interesting dynamic when you're in the States of individuals who are more pro-Palestine, pro-Palestinian cause, um, and their viewpoint towards Israel. And then also from being in Israel and seeing the way they view the Palestinian people. Um, I just, I want to make it clear my experience and the majority of individuals I know in Israel, um, who I think represent a pretty wide swathe of the Israeli population, they completely know and understand that Hamas as an organization does not represent the the Palestinian people as a whole. Uh, Hamas, even within the Gaza Strip, does not represent every Palestinian in the Gaza Strip. They do, however, have both political and military control in the in the Gaza Strip. And when things happen where Hamas is attacking Israelis or Hezbollah is attacking Israelis or Jews are being killed in different places around the world, there is a very real experience of seeing it celebrated among the Palestinian people, both in Gaza and in the West Bank. And so the, the, the people in Israel, the Jewish people in Israel, um, Israelis as a whole, whether they're Arab or Jewish or Druze or the different nationalities that are all living within Israel, um, they understand that Hamas is not the one representative for all the Palestinian people. I mean, they only, they're really only in the Gaza Strip slightly a little bit in the West Bank. And then there's a completely different group that is in control of the West Bank. Um, and But there is this issue uh, that the this experience that the Israeli people are experiencing where when attacks against them are occurring, it's being celebrated by individuals uh, in the Arab world and that is the problem that they're experiencing. They want to have peace with the Palestinian people. They want to have peace with their Arab neighbors, but they're seeing these these attacks upon them being celebrated, no matter who's attacking them. Is it would the immediate counterpoint from the other side on that be though? It's 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 hard to lend credence to your offer of peace as you oppress me. So I mean. That is a that is a, a, a viewpoint, and I think you also that's the that's the talking point that most people are trying to to push. That's the that's the experience and the line that the people in the West Bank, that the leadership in the West Bank and the leadership in Gaza is trying to force upon their people. Uh, these individuals are growing up in a system where they're being oppressed, and when you're experiencing it there, your blame is going upon who everyone is blaming, the people you're growing up to hate. But then from the outside, you can actually see the bigger picture. You can see where Israel has enforced some of these security concerns, and they've they've enforced some of these, these experiences and these, these things they're having to do to protect themselves, because when they didn't have these, it was all-out warfare on a regular basis. Um, but you also have all this money that's coming in to supposedly help provide humanitarian relief. You're having funds going to Gaza. You're having funds going to the West Bank, and it's not making its way down to the people that need it. It's being gobbled up in corruption, or it's being used to purchase 
and outfit um, weapons to be used against the Israeli people. And so it's, it's not hard for me to see. It's, I totally understand where people uh, in the Arab world or people in Gaza, people in the West Bank, they're seeing their life and that it's not great. They, they don't understand why they don't have opportunities. And their only experience is that there's these people across that fence over there who are keeping us like this. But they're also not seeing the full picture of Hamas above me is just taking all this stuff and they're committing atrocities, which mean my water gets cut off, which means my electricity gets cut off, which means I now have to withstand these bombardments trying to take out these installations that Hamas has put their rocket launchers next to my school. So, Does that yeah. make sense? so let's, uh, cause I, I really, I do want to dig into the history in the background. And when I say the history, I mean, I want to mm. take it all the way back. Right. Yeah. But let's talk about some of the realities on the ground as we understand them right now. Not, not so much culturally. I do want to talk about what it's like to exist in that space as a Palestinian right now. Um, that what what you saw firsthand or what you experienced or are aware of firsthand with what it's like for them to um you know to to try to travel to try to make a living um how restricted those things mm-hmm. are what kind of freedoms they do and don't experience um you know outside mm-hmm. of the of the Gaza strip and how how difficult travel is and is and I, I do want to touch on those things if we have time but um yeah. as we understand facts and you, and you were kind enough to to list some of these in our show notes so I'll go through right now with with the current conflict that that we saw begin uh back on I don't have a calendar pulled up but a, li- a little over a week ago now um is um we've seen over 5000 and and I think early on I think their initial assault included over 3 like 3 to 5000 rockets but we've certainly seen over 5000 rockets fired into Israel from Gaza. Now these are, these are not smart munitions, uh, right? So, you know, don't picture, uh, what we're used to seeing like man pads that the U S would use or, or smart guided missiles, anything like that. This is like the fuse and where it lands, it lands. These are indiscriminate munitions. Um, at current, most, most of them, not all of them. Some of them are, some of them are, are actual legit, long range rockets. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. So, um, we've seen over, um, you listed 1200 civilians killed. Is that on both sides or is that on the Israeli side? What you found? That's just on the Israeli side. Um, that was in the attack by Hamas on that started on the 7th of yeah. October. Um, as they have found and, and as they've liberated some of the, the kibbutzes and the Moshavs that have been overrun, um, as they, reasserted control over some of the IDF po- um, outposts, they are finding um, casualties and victims. And so far that number is over 1200. Gotcha. And the number of civilian deaths on, on both sides, uh, we're just going to see those continue to climb. Um, yeah. And that's, that's by design. Uh, on, on both sides, but the, the argument about whose design it is, it's part of what we, we need to talk about tonight. It's 100% in, in this attack um, is Israeli. Rather, those were, again, Jewish, Arab. They were indiscriminate in their killing of civilians, but civilians were 100% targeted. 
Um, they were yeah. not collateral damage. They were, they did not die due to proximity to what the rest of the world would call legitimate military targets. That's not what was happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yep. look no farther than I, there's uh, and. Again, I would caution people, uh, and uh, Becca, try, you know, was wanting to come on with us tonight. We couldn't work it out schedule wise, and and I'd love to still circle back with her um, to touch on the psychological aspects of this. Um, but I, I would caution you in how much footage you seek out from these things, because there's some truly horrific things that have happened that you you can't unsee, and and it, I don't know that it does us a lot of good to see them, yeah. other than at the same time just looking away and pretending like those images and those videos aren't out there um, mm. makes it tough to learn from and, and really understand the horror of what's going on. Um, yeah. But all that to say, there's plenty of, of, of documented footage from this desert rave, this dance party, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was targeted that I mean, just a purely uh, civilian uh, target there. So, and, and on the, on the opposite side, as the Israeli military, as the IDF makes their push into Gaza, um, both, um, you know, targeting Hamas and unfortunately looking to rescue hostages. Um, Hamas is embedded in the populace. It, it's, it's very yes. intentional. They're, they're not in yep. little military enclaves. Their, their storehouses are, they're in mosques, they are in schools, they are in apartment buildings, and that is intentional at the same time mm-hmm. that you have the Israeli military telling people, leave this area, it's about to be flat, get out. Mm. You have, and, mm-hmm. and this is documented, This I mean, there, there's plenty of documented proof for this from multiple sources. You have Hamas tell- There's reported, yeah. there's, there's Palestinian reporters in Gaza confirming that these things are happening, yes. that they are being told to evacuate regions. Yes. It's not just the, the West saying that this is happening. It's not just the Israeli spokespeople. It is confirmed and it's being verified by Palestinian reporters in Gaza. And at the same time, you have Palestinian officials, which again, to say Palestinian officials is to say Hamas. They are the functional government in Gaza at this point, are telling these civilians, don't leave, stay put. And that the purpose behind that, as I understand it, is twofold. It's they want that protection. They want that hesitation to attack knowing how much civilian collateral damage there will be. And they want mm-hmm. the optics of it. Um, they've played this yeah. game out before where they hit Israel. The IDF pushes in. Everybody's like, yeah, makes sense. That was horrific. That was uh, tragic. That was everything. And because memories are so short in short order, the horror of the initial attack is forgotten and it's mm-hmm. all the pushback, all the expectation of restraint then is upon Israel of, hey, 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 yeah. hey you're too far, too much. Too and so the, the intention there is, is twofold. Now, again, there are people who would counterpoint that as that, no, uh, Israel delights in taking out those civilian targets. There are, there are people who would say that. They're not represented on this show tonight. Yeah. Um, yep. But – but they, there are people who would happily make that case. And I want to acknowledge that that take is, is out there that they relish in yeah. the excuse to in, mm. inflict this punishment upon 
all Palestinians upon all of Gaza. Um, and so that that take is out there. The uh, current counts, and, and we still don't know, I, I saw this horrific video um, of, a, of a dad finding out that they had found his, his daughter, I believe she was around six, that they found her dead. And he, he literally yeah. cried out in joy. He literally thanked God yep. because that was the yeah. best of the possible scenarios because he did not know yep. if she had been kidnapped, which would have been yep. in his mind a, a far worse, w- a worse scenario worse. than her simply having been killed. Uh, but there's yeah. over 150 people missing. Um, and, and most of those are presumed to, to be held in Gaza as we record. Um, today, there was uh, footage released by Hamas uh, today of um, Hamas. I don't know what we're supposed to call them, soldiers, uh, whatever, um, uh, holding Israeli children, toddlers, babies. Um, yeah. their, their goal, as you see these videos, is not to comfort them and keep them safe. Um, they, yeah. are, they are at the very least being held as human shields. Uh, and likely will will not make it out of this scenario uh, alive. So a lot going on there, and um, you added something in that I, I think was really poignant to to give um, some perspective to the scale of of what we're seeing here. Um, and in that, you know, you look at uh, as an American, we look at nine eleven, uh, you know, as this big focal point, as this big big historical turning point. And in our, um, I'm not sure what population was in 2001. I know now we're around 320 million, somewhere north of that. Uh, and of course, we yeah. famously, you know, lost around 3,000 lives um, in the 9/11 attacks. Um, to to break this down to percentages, um, you you listed that a thousand Israeli deaths would be equivalent to over 30,000 Israeli deaths as a percentage of of population. Um, American yes. deaths, yeah. and yeah, and yeah. those, you know, similar the the percentages are even worse when you look at the percentage of Palestinian population that we're going to see one hundred percent. We are going to see it's unavoidable uh, in yeah. uh, in civ- civilian Palestinians' deaths. So I mean, there's no there's no happy story uh, coming out of this. There, there's there's just not a happy ending. There's not. Uh, a pretty way out. There's no rainbows and unicorns and leprechauns. Um, it's, it's just not a thing. And so, but it's just such an odd scenario, even like how Israel is a nation, right. Is a foreign concept to much of the world, mm. particularly us in America. What's going on with understanding the landscape and what the scenario and what's going on with the West bank and with Gaza and even within Jerusalem where it's like, yeah, you control it, but you don't. It's it's just tough, and so yeah. it's kind of a convoluted way, uh, even within the annals of history of how nation states come to be. Uh, Israel's kind of this super special little snowflake, um, and that's why I say yeah. I kind of yeah. want to run the tape all the way back to help listeners understand how we got here and where this animosity comes from. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, it's there's so. There's so much there and it's, it's important to know that there, a lot of people automatically dismiss everything from before like 1947 or 1900. They just say the conflict didn't, it just started recently, which it really 
mostly started at like the aspect of it being between Israeli and, and the Palestinian people has, is a new concept. It's a hundred years old. It's not much older than that. Um, but the history of the conflict and the tension around the entire area of Israel, the Holy Land, Palestine, uh, that is thousands of years old, very nuanced, a lot to it. Uh, and so all of those elements have come into play for why this is such a hot button issue for the Jewish people, for the Arab people, uh, and now it's nuanced approach within Iran, Israel, within um, the Saudi Arabia, Israeli relationship, within Israel's relationship with the Palestinian people and different um, countries in that area. There, there's a lot. It's very nuanced. So if we want to take this all the way back, um, and uh, I'd love for you to, to speak to this from an academic standpoint, uh, because I think if we start to talk um, Christianity, Islam, from the sense of like what my belief, you know, we're both Christians. Um, mm -hmm. we're, I mean, we're, we're really, you know, narrowing the target tonight in that we're both AG boys, right? So there's not yeah, a lot of diversity yeah. in belief here, uh, right? But I think we can, I think you can establish the shared history in, in this space and in these peoples historically, aside from, uh, any faith or belief in the Christian scriptures in, uh, the, the Quran or Islamic holy writings, uh, in that mm -hmm. there there is shared genealogy here. Um, mm -hmm. bo both yep. peoples trace their their lineage and their genealogy all the way back through Abraham. Um, yep. And really, this conflict goes back to Isaac and Ishmael. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, they, they, it's as even without the religious aspect, I mean, the religion does come into play um, for the greater Arab Jewish conflict, uh, which is making itself manifest in Israel, Palestine conflict, Arab Israel conflict. Um, but there is such a historical truce to looking at the tensions between the peoples in that area, um, starting back at Ishmael and Isaac. Um, and so you see the story of it really comes down to whose birthright was it to have the land. And you see that story of the of, of who received the birthright. It's representative in both uh, Muslim and Christian and Jewish texts and, and belief systems and in, in their um, in their stories and their traditions. But there's there's slight differences. For in the Bible and in the Talmud and, and um, in the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, you're list you're looking at Isaac being the one who received the inheritance, who received the promise, who received the blessing, and then in um, Islamic faith, in the Muslim faith, you're seeing it going through Ishmael, and so you see uh, tensions and conflict on each person wants to be the one that received the father's blessing. And it, it's ultimately from that perspective, um, we want the father's blessing upon our house. And you say it's yours and we say it's ours. Yeah. And so that's where, that's where it starts. Um, there is there, I mean, Islamic scholars, 
even argued about it. In early, early Islam acknowledged there were scholars there um, who looked at it and they acknowledged that their belief was that Isaac was the one who was being sacrificed in Genesis uh, when Abraham brought Isaac up to sacrifice in obedience to what God was asking him to do. And he was rescued by God providing the ram, no longer needed to sacrifice his son. Um, so even at that, it's a nuanced approach. But taking it out of the religious system and we look more at the history of the region, uh, it just becomes so crazy at who should have historical inheritance and rights of inheritance. So if, and it's very much up for debate at that if point. If we're going to, um, you know, apply names to, to the region, what's if, if we're going, you know, as far back as we can go in agreed upon historical record, what would have been the, the first acknowledged name of the reason region or the first acknowledged agreed upon people group. Cause at this point we're not even talking about, we're not, we wouldn't even have been calling the people groups Palestinian or Israeli. No. That wasn't a, that would no. have been a thing. No, no, you're looking at, um, so this area that we now refer to as Palestine or the land of Israel, uh, is one of the earliest areas in the world to see human habitation. Uh, so there have been people there going back thousands and thousands of years. You had uh, the Canaanites, you had the Philistines, you had the Jebusites, uh, the Hittites. I mean, all the ites were representative in this land that was, a lot of people called it the land of Canaan. Um, but even then you had city-states that owned specific areas and their surrounding proximities. Um, it was very highly contested yeah. for thousands and thousands of years. So uh, real quick, can and can we establish that? So I think people, if you haven't studied, and I haven't, um, I just, I know enough to know that I don't know enough, right? And so, but when mm. you when you study uh, history, geography, these type of things at an academic level with academic rigor, right? It's... It, I think a lot of people would be shocked at how thin some of the evidence of the things and people that we believe in are. And so one one thing that is established fact that we love in the Christian faith to toss out there is that there's more documented historical proof of the existence of Jesus Christ as a human being who walked the earth than of Julius Caesar. That boggles people's minds. But when you're talking about, you know, papyrus and sheepskins and paper and books surviving and carrying this record forward and stone tablets, all this stuff over millennia, it's really bits and pieces that, that get through. And there's a yeah. lot to it. So I say all that to say, like, how, how strong is the case established where these are all people groups I'm familiar with having spent, you know, mm -hmm. decades in the Christian faith at this point, how well established are those people groups and the habitation in this area outside of, uh, you know, uh, Christian, Jewish, Muslim scripture, or is that the historical record? Yeah. Is that it? No, there's definitely, there's so much more within archeology span and actually the person that you want to ask that specific question of, uh, for what's the archeological evidence is actually my brother who is doing his, PhD in biblical archaeology with a focus on Assyriology. Um, so he's the, he's the archaeologist in the family. I'm the, I'm the mo more modern scholar toward that. But even I, like, there is so much archaeological evidence 
for these different people groups that you're finding within um, within um, pieces that are being recovered in Egypt that are referring to to uh, cities and states that are existing within this land that we now call Palestine or Israel. Uh, and you're seeing records and evidence being discovered near uh, Mosul and up in modern day Iraq. And you're seeing things from different archaeological discoveries all over the region. And so it's not just the Bible or the Quran or the Talmud that's saying this is what happened. You're finding, I mean, they're, they're continuously finding historically validating pieces and sources uh, that are scientifically corroborating the biblical narrative of people in those areas and stories that happened. And in that, in that period of time in history, they're, they're actually, even if you want to look at religious texts across the major religions, even across the big three, there's a vast amount of agreement in the human mm-hmm. record mm-hmm. in that period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, even, even different Roman writers you're seeing that, I mean, they're great corroboration for things that we have listed and in greater detail within by b- biblical scripture. Um, and you're seeing pieces of those even corroborated uh, within Roman historians. So you know but, we've got we've got all the ites there. Kind of where do we progress? We'll we'll keep the timeline moving. Yeah. So um, really, if we were to go into like a detailed breakdown of who was there, who had control, when um, you're starting out within the Bronze Age um, with the Canaanites who had established city states. Um, modeled a lot, I mean, very similarly to the Egyptian city-states, and then uh, eventually Egypt as one of the dominant political entities in that ancient age held control over that region of the world at that time. It was a crossroads from what we now know as Africa to uh, Asia. And so people groups that were established in modern-day Turkey Uh, modern-day Iran, uh, modern-day Iraq, down into modern-day Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula, you're seeing this crossroads there. Um, So we see in the Bronze Age, uh, both the Canaanites being there, Egypt having dominion in the late Bronze Age. And then as we progress into the Iron Age, you see the Israelite kingdoms of Israel and Judah emerge as those who had political control, military control over this region. Uh, that we look at, I mean, the easiest way to define it is basically what we now know of as the Negev Desert between the Jordan River and the Sinai Peninsula up to uh, what we now know as Lebanon. It was even further into Lebanon. Uh, If you look at the land that was allocated towards the different tribes of Israel, it gets up into Syria, over into Jordan, um, but you're not getting as far as modern-day Iraq. So. That's kind of the general area is everything around the Jordan River Valley uh, towards the Mediterranean Sea down towards the Sinai Peninsula um, is the region of the world that we're talking about. Uh, But as you see within the Iron Age, the Philistines occupied the southern coast. They had their city states, which is now in the Gaza Strip region, the city of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod uh, were all Philistine um, cities. They also had the areas of like Sidon and Tyre up in modern-day Lebanon. Um, 
And then as we progress into the eighth century, you're, you're seeing the region conquered by the Assyrian empire. And that is then followed by the Babylonians, by the Persians. And then under Alexander the great, the Hellenistic conquest of the region in like the three thirties BC. And then a little shortly afterwards, in the late second century BC, you see a semi-Jewish kingdom reemerge under the Hasmonean dynasty, um, coming out of the Seleucid Empire that was an offshoot of the Hellenistic conquest with Alexander the Great. There's so much history that we are just rushing past yeah. very yeah. quickly. Um, but this gives you uh, an understanding of over 400 years, you had about four or five different groups that had dominion over that region of the world. Um, but in the late second century BC, the Hasmonean dynasty, which as we get into like 63 BC and Rome taking over that kingdom as a vassal state of the Roman empire, um, you would, you would know King Herod, Herod Agrippa as a member of the Hasmonean dynasty. That's the family that they came from. It was a semi Jewish kingdom. Um, and so they had Jewish ancestry within their lineage. And so that's the, it was, it was a Jewish state, but it was a vassal state of different empires and they never really had full autonomy. Um, and so it, from about, about 63 BC up until 135 AD, you see that region being more commonly referred to as Roman Judea. And it wasn't until 135 AD um, as a punishment following the Bar Kokhba revolt that you see that region being renamed to Palestine or, or Palestinian. And so um, that was brought about because of the Bar Kokhba revolt and the, the, the Romans wanted to punish the Jewish people there for not submitting. They combined that govern, like the, the government districts. They combined them with the region that was up in Syria. And so um, they just kind of changed the name a little bit to more refer to the whole region. Whereas like because of the, the Philistines, they owned, they were just seafaring people and they were known across the Mediterranean Sea. And so it was this, this word Palestine or Palestina was more of a generalization of areas where the Philistines had been. So I've, I've heard it said, uh, not just uh, in recent commentary, but over the years, um, I've heard people who fall on the side, uh, however you want to term things, of uh, you know being more supportive of Israel or, or however you want to phrase that. Um, I've, I've heard it said and touted that the, the area, there's never been a nation of Palestine. The area has never gone by Palestine. Um, that essentially like Palestine as a proper place has never existed, but that sounds inaccurate to me based on what you've just broken down for us. Um, semi inaccurate. It's, it's not entirely wrong, but there has never been a Palestinian kingdom or a Palestinian country. Um, this, this phrase Palestine, as we say it now, or Palestina it was more used in that day to refer to a region, kind of like how we would use the term Midwest yeah. or the East Coast or the South. It was to refer to a general area and not specifically 
a certain section. So are we talking about a distinction with no difference here, though? Are we splitting hairs because it's advantageous to the argument we agree with? And that we're saying, well, it wasn't really a Palestinian state because it wasn't under co- just complete Palestinian governance or control? Well, I think it, it's more important to note that there has never been a group that oversaw and ruled over that region of the world that were known as the Palestinians. The, the actual rise of Palestinian nationalism and this movement of solidarity and consolidating our identity as Palestinians is something that did not occur until around 1900 and, and, and with the British mandate in, in what was they referred to it as the British mandate in Palestine. And as the Arab people across the Middle East saw this rise of Arab nationalism, whether they were becoming Lebanese or Syrian, or, uh, or or Jordanian, one of the nationalistic movements that arose at that point was this identity as Palestinian. And so until that point, there was no people that would have identified themselves as Palestinian. They would have been Arab. They would have been Muslim. They would have been something else. They would have been known for their tribe. They would have been uh, a Mamluk. They would have been an Ottoman. They would have been an Egyptian. So was Palestinian or Palestine just a bastardization of Philistine or Philistine? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's really all it was. Uh, the The Roman people, the, the Romans, when they were renaming it, they wanted to obliterate any reference to Judea or to Yehudim. Um, these different terms that were being used for the Jewish people, they wanted to just obliterate that. And so they went back to the Philistine people who occupied some city states uh, that were pro- were prominent prior to the Roman conquest and the Greek conquest of those regions and the Egyptian conquest of those regions. And so they brought that name, they resurrected that name. Where did the, where does the destruction of um, the Jewish temple fall into the timeline? Uh, I believe that would have been, I believe the destruction was either in 135 AD with the Bar Kokhba revolt, or it was in 77 AD. Um, that one would be one I would want to confirm. But so we're, we're, we're in that time frame. Yeah, you're in that general time frame. And- that all occurred. There were multiple Jewish revolts against the Roman Empire. Um, they, weren't, they weren't really happy with Roman governance. They weren't happy living under a polytheist uh, government. They wanted to have their yeah, own. Well, neither am I. Um, so. They wanted to have their control. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But that's, I mean, this is also getting into religion. Yeah. This is why you saw the disciples and the Jewish people not recognizing the Messiah because of their, their preconceived notion of, of that he would, that the Messiah would come and liberate them from being under yeah. Well, and, and I, I asked, I, you know, I wanted to place the the destruction of the temple on the timeline, not so much. So for for us as Christians, for Jews, there were there were issues of um, of uh, faith, obviously, and religious implications to both the existence of the temple itself and the destruction of the temple. Um, but beyond that, and you know, we're, where we're placing it, whether it's seventy seven A D. one thirty five A D. you're still talking, obviously, well after the the ministry and the in the death of of Christ um and the resurrection depending yeah. on where you fall on that side of the that experience um 
But in an area like that, when you think about the iron fist of Roman control, uh, which is funny, you put it in our show Mm. notes and it's been the running gag lately, how much men think about Rome. Um, But you know, that, that was that the existence of the temple was tolerated for any period of time under Roman control, the experience, the um, existence of, of a building of a structure, not just of that magnitude, but of that level of importance, right? That exudes a certain level of control of governance in and of itself to where even so, you know, as you become a man, like at some point, certain things happen. Like you're just going to get into certain hobbies. Um, you're going to have to uh, pick either a particular world war, or you're going to have to pick a period of history, or you're going to have to get super into barbecue. There, there's some narrow lanes that men, we all fall into at one point. So, you know, yeah. you're, you're a history buff going a little farther back in a little different region. And I, of course, love uh, American history and the revolution. But when you go and visit our nation's capital, despite its uh, many any flaws these days, when you visit buildings like the Capitol building, when you visit, which a lot of people miss, the Library of Congress, the Library of Congress is very unassuming from the outside, the Jefferson building in particular. When you go inside, mm-hmm. I it's the most impressive building in, uh, in the United States of America. When you go inside, it was built it w- uh, with the intention of ex- like basically telling Europe, hey, we're here and we're for real, right? Like we're on par. It's yeah. magnificent inside. And so, um, you know, when you're talking about this period of human history, architecture, like regardless of the religious implications, the mere existence of architecture, of a building of the importance of the Jewish temple, that alone speaks to the influence and the governance and the control of the area by the Jewish people. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that even though the Jewish people did not have political control that entire time, because that wasn't that wasn't the first temple. That was a second temple that existed um, when Jesus went around that turn of the, turn of the first millennia um, when Jesus was on Earth. Um, that was the second temple. It wasn't the first temple. The first temple had already been destroyed, and so the second temple had been rebuilt. Um, but there was still a Jewish there was still a Jewish presence in that land. The entire time, there were people known as Jews who who abided by the Jewish religion, by the Jewish faith. Uh, they never left that region, even though they were forcibly removed in mass multiple times. There was always a remnant that remained in that land, and that continued throughout the rest of history until now. Uh, even after uh, 135 AD, uh, when when there was when it was renamed to Palestine uh, as, as the term that was used to reference to it. And we saw the Muslim conquest of the Levant in like the 600s AD. Uh, and then going forward through the Crusades through up until World War I, there was always a Jewish presence in the land, even though they did not have political control over that area. Uh, dude, the Crusades were, I mean... I, I'm not trying to uh, to do hardcore history here. I couldn't do it justice, and it's already being done well enough by hardcore history. But the Crusades were cuckoo for cocoa puffs, and it, it that might be worth yeah. a, a podcast of its own sometime. Um, <laughs> but I got the so guy th- for you so on then, that again, one. I got it. Like I, I, I genuinely, I want to be very intellectually honest. I want to be very, very fair here. I, I want to do, I want to do justice to 
the the legitimate points of view and the legitimate or potentially legitimate grievances on what would be maybe the opposite side of the aisle from where I find myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we're yep. if we're talking about you know the people group that we would refer to as as modern day Palestinians tracing to some extent their lineage and their genealogy back to the Philistines or Philistines, however we're supposed to put this, right? Um again, not a historian and I didn't stay at a holiday inn last yep. night. So um uh, a, a listener, a supporter, a, a good one, a good buddy of mine pointed out, I always make that joke wrong. I like always say Holiday Inn Express, and I think it's supposed to be select. Either way, I always botch it, and Eric pointed it out. So thanks for keeping me honest, buddy. I'm still going to get it wrong. Um, but like, there, it, there seems as strong an argument for the presence of their people group, of their ancestors in the same space for as much time, right? I mean, if, if we're talking about the ites, if we're talking about the Philistines, were the Philistines already in the space as the Israelites would have crossed over from Egypt? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and so that's a great conversation. Um, I think the, the key element there is you're not going to typically see the claim for the Palestinian people being the descendants of the Philistines. Um, it's, it's, it's in mass, a different people group. Uh, there were, um, many, many other ancient people groups that, uh, resided in that land. But if we're tracing the ancestry, um, back through Ishmael, you're ending up with the Arab people coming out of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and even the history of who considers themselves Arab has more to do uh, with the process of Islamization that occurred as Islam spread across that region of the world. And then as they were going by and these different countries, such as Egypt, was getting, it was getting um, brought under the fold of being uh, the, uh, a Muslim nation or a Muslim kingdom, their identities shifted for a large portion of history to identify themselves as Arab and not always identify themselves as the nation that they were previously. Can, can you, and so you'll see, you'll yeah. see certain people, people groups that maintained their identity, like the Kurdish people in Northern Iraq maintained their Kurdish identity going back until, I mean, they're, most people would consider them the descendants of the ancient Assyrians. And that's where they would trace their lineage to. But you don't see people identifying themselves as the, as the descendants of the ancient Hittites or the ancient Canaanites or the ancient Philistines. Um, you're seeing um, people who are tracing themselves back to the Bedouin people, the nomadic peoples, the Arab people um, that, uh, that resided in that region of the Arab Peninsula which is where it's said that Ishmael went to um, after being expelled by by Abraham. So, uh, can you bring some clarity on that for us, real quick, so that you know, not for for my own edification, but for the listeners as well, because I think, uh, again, coming from uh, you know an, an American viewpoint, right, from an American paradigm on this, I think the waters get muddied in the terminology of Jew on both sides of what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be Israeli in the modern context, um, but also mm. terminologies around Islamic, Muslim, Arabic, or Arab. 
Yeah. 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 Um, so it's a very interesting conversation when you look at who is Israeli and who is Jewish. What are the differences? Um, Jewish being Jewish refers both to an ethnicity and to a religious status. So I can be, I can be religiously Jewish. I can be, I can be someone who was not, um, descendant of one of the tribes of Israel but I now abide and ascribe to the Jewish faith. Um, likewise, I can trace my lineage back through to the, to the tribes of Israel, being a descendant of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes, uh, and therefore I have Jewish ancestry, but I might be Buddhist. I might be Hindu. Um, I might still be Jewish religiously, but I am Jewish ethnically. Uh, does that answer yeah, that yeah, portion? Yeah, I think so. Or do you want... For, okay. On the other side, um, there's Islam as a religion is the is the name of the religion. Uh, subs, uh, subscribers to Islam or adherence to Islam, probably the better terminology there, adherence to Islam, refer to themselves as Muslims. And so um, Arab is a specific kind of cultural identity that the majority of those individuals are Muslim. And so just because someone is Muslim does not mean they are Arab. The actual largest, the country with the most adherence of Islam is actually Indonesia. <laughs> so it's, it's the Middle East where you typically see most of your Arab Muslims is where it's, that's the birthplace of Islam. It originated in Mecca and, and Saudi, the modern day Saudi Arabia. That's where it arose, and then it spread out from there. Um, but your Egyptians, well, they all were Arabized for a significant portion of time. Um, they have a distinct cultural identity. Uh, your Sudanese are not Arab, but they're typically Muslim. Uh, a lot of your people in Nigeria, not Arab, but they're, they're Muslim. Yeah. Your Iranians, definitely not Arab. Do not call an Iranian an Arab. But they're Muslim. Gotcha. So, so, so Arabs, so Arabs more, Arabs more, re, more regional. So, in you know, like for you to say to bring up Nigerian, a Nigerian is also would also be an African in the way that perhaps an Egyptian would be. Well, an Egyptian could be an African too, is an African too, but could be uh, Arabic or an or an Arab. Is it about uh, like shared shared language? Kind of like what delineates that? No, it's more, it's more ethnic, it's more ethnicity. Um, now it's, it's a lot of ethnicity and a lot of culture. And so, um, I would say you see some of the regions in North Africa, which are distinctly Arab in culture. Um, but they do, they do have some nuances that aren't fully, what you see as an Arab in Saudi Arabia. Um, so you see Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, Algeria, they have their own distinct cultural twist, but for the most part, they would probably still identify themselves as Arab, even though they don't trace their genealogy back to the same place fully. Um, Egyptians, you're going to have some that will say Arab. You're going to have some that say they're not Arab, they're Egyptian. 
uh, and they would they would have some different identifiers there. But being an Arab as a whole, it has more to do with culture and ethnicity than it does religion. Yeah. Whereas Islam and Muslim has everything to do with religion and just gets conflated and brought and combined with Arab more than it should be because it, it to say someone is Muslim definitely does not mean they're Arab. And to say someone is Arab does not mean right. they're Muslim. So coming back to our timeline, where does Muhammad come on the scene? Yeah, Muhammad comes on the scene in the 600s AD um, and he leads the, he, he rises. He is the final prophet of Allah. He brings the last will and testament of Allah in essence um, of God. And he raises uh, a, a group of people that are become subscribers uh, are subscribers of the faith and they go forth and they conquer vast regions of the world that was known at that point. And they spread uh, not only the Arab, the Arab culture, but the religion of Islam uh, across North Africa, up into uh, Spain and Portugal. You see them getting into uh, with different groups into Turkey, um, over into Iran. Um, it just spreads from there. So, um, was uh, how how much of what we we know or understand as the modern Islamic faith was in writing was in practice prior to Muhammad coming on the scene? Nothing. So it, so, eh, Islam as a faith as a religion did not exist before Muhammad. So so prior to that, what are we and, looking at relationally between these people or groups? Is it just more at that point what we had seen? historically as more uh, tribal or feudal nations, smaller people groups. Sometimes you're getting along. Sometimes you're fighting. Sometimes you've got some treaties while it's convenient. Sometimes you don't, uh, you know, kind of what's the region look like prior. Cause I, I, I guess yeah. the, the, what I'm, what yeah. I'm leaning towards there kind of the, again, the question behind the question is, is, is Muhammad's appearance on scene where we see this great departure an escalation of uh, violence, of disagreement, you know, however we want to word that. Yeah. So in essence, what you see at that point is you're seeing most of the people in modern day Saudi Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula, um, you're seeing it very much separated into tribal mentalities. Like they identified as their tribe. They identified, they identified as their clan that's where their allegiance was to. It was not to any overarching nation states. They were they were sold out for their tribe, and that's where their identity was. Majority of individuals in that area were also polytheists. And so this was uh, an individual who came in. He banded together um, different groups of people uh, from different tribes, and he also instituted a monotheistic religion. And so there were there's so many different things that he changed about the culture and the way that they lived when uh, when Islam came onto the map 
and Muhammad consolidated these different groups and then brought that forth. Was th- I mean, was there a, a political or a socioeconomic climate that kind of lent itself to the rise of a leader like him at that time? Like what was going on? Yeah, it, it was that region of the world. It's, it was very Bedouin society. You had some cities and they weren't major. I don't like they were, I don't believe they were major states, anything that we would ascribe to at this point. They weren't anything like you saw um, along the Mediterranean basin. They weren't major cities like you would see in Egypt or you would see even in Jerusalem. Um, they were smaller outposts, um, different. I mean, that portion of the Arabian Peninsula uh, was very much still a Bedouin lifestyle. And so do we know what do we know what we mean by Bedouin lifestyle? Nomadic? I mean, I know, but for the listeners, why don't you break it down just for Okay. Yeah. So Bedouin uh refers to individuals who lived a mostly nomadic lifestyle, very much focused on um care for their flocks, whether they be sheep or camels, horses, donkeys. Uh, and they would they would go around a large territory moving from watering hole to watering hole from grass to grass in order to facilitate the needs of their flocks. And so they were, they were referred to as the Bedou um, and known as Bedouin. And so they, they really just roamed vast territories and you had some that were focused in more agricultural centers, but they weren't major cities. Um, you would have to get closer to the Euphrates or the Tigris River. Uh, you'd have to get up into Syria, where you had more influence from Greco-Roman culture, um, or even over into Egypt, where you had more influences from Egyptian culture, before you really found these dominant cities. Um, you started seeing, if you were around water, so if you were either in the Red Sea or over on what we refer to as the Persian Gulf, you would see more um, centers of urbanization, but it was still a developing space where everything in the interior of the Arabian Peninsula was predominantly uh, a Bedouin lifestyle. Gotcha. So through through all this uh, turmoil in the region, none of that was driven religiously prior to. Uh, the rise of Islam is that right? And we're basically seeing control exchange hands as as empires rise and fall, right? Where whereas yeah. it's it's the introduction of of Islam where we begin to see you know what what become the Crusades. Yeah, you start to see the class the clash of civilizations occurring more around religion. Um, following the Muslim conquest. And then you see uh, these individuals where Christianity has spread and has become the dominant force in Europe. And these individuals feel like it's their responsibility as Christians to come and liberate the Holy Land, um, to to expel the infidel, um, the non-believer, and replace it where um, Christians can worship peacefully to their perspective. Um, if you actually look at historically how People were treated under the Ottoman Empire or under some of these other groups. Um, the Jewish people, Christians, uh, they weren't the predominant entity, but they, I mean, they were able to worship in peace for the most part under uh, the Ottomans and under some of the different uh, Muslim reigns. Um, but you had political motives, you had um, under the guise of religious motives, 
that spurred a lot of the crusades and that's an entirely different yeah, conversation. I think listeners if you're looking for a good um just solidly historically accurate depiction of this really the the opening scenes of uh Robin Hood Prince of Thieves famously starring Kevin Costner uh is uh is is worth your your time. It, I I don't I don't believe that it's historically accurate in any way, shape, or form. But it's a good watch for sure. No. So. Yeah. Yeah. You should also check out uh, Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom. Love me some Orlando Bloom. If anybody's yeah. well suited to represent uh, the the period of the Crusades, it's Legolas for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. For sure. So, I mean, but really we, you know, we see, I'm looking at your notes here. Your notes are making me sound way smarter tonight than I actually am. So kudos to you for that, sir. But, you know, we're seeing this period of, uh, I mean, what, I mean, I guess we're looking at, um, I mean, a, a millennium of this, this back and forth, these holy wars, um, you know, from, from the, yeah. the mid 600s all the way up really through, um, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, yeah. Basically, from uh, from the mid 600s until um, basically 1917 and in World War One, uh, that land was controlled uh, by Muslim nations um, and, and Muslim kingdoms um, by various names. Um, it started. It, it ended with the Ottoman Empire uh, that gained control in about 1516. AD and they held control of that region until 1917 and the fall of world war one. So, um, Jerusalem's been a constant in that uh, other, other cities as well, but Jerusalem's been a constant throughout. Um, but mm-hmm. like if, uh, if you were coming to my neck of the woods, if you were going to come visit the rat, you know, ride some rides out at Disney world, um, you know, you're going to Orlando, but it's in Florida. Right. So if I'm, whatever my, my proclivities are, you know, at this, at this period of Ottoman control, I I'm going to Jerusalem, yep. Jerusalem, what area am I saying I'm going to visit? What terminology am I using? Uh, you're actually going to an area that would be more referred to as being controlled over by, um, representatives from, from Damascus. And so they, they, the States that the Ottoman empire broke them into are the Wilayets. Um, the, the, the territory around Jerusalem more typically fell into an administrative role, uh, that was overseen from Damascus and not specifically, uh, Jerusalem. So I'm not saying, Hey man, I'm, I'm road tripping to Palestine or Palestinia or Hey, Hey, Hey bro, I'm, uh, I'm road tripping over to, uh, to Israel. You want to come with, that's not a thing. Yeah, no, no, no. You're not referring to Palestine or Israel for the most part. You would, you would, you would might say a specific city, um, but that region, you're probably more saying, uh, Syria, uh, or, um, Jerusalem or like at that point it'd be El Quds, uh, or, or the different communities that you're trying to go to specifically. So what, what changes in the early 1900s then? Well, in the early 1900s, we have uh, a massive world war that takes place. Um, and you see, uh, the British. And the French looking at they're about to win this war and they want to divide up the spoils of the Middle East. They want to say, hey, um, France, you get these pieces Uh, as the English. We're going to take these pieces 
you also had some negotiations with the Italians and some other community or some other countries that were involved in World War One on the on that side um, that were like, hey, we would like these areas. But overall, it was predominantly um, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 divided the Middle East between French and British spheres of influence, uh, where the British oversaw an area, basically um, modern day Israel, Palestine, Transjordan, uh, and then over into Iraq, uh, and then down into Saudi Arabia um, and Egypt. And that was the sphere of influence that the British would oversee. Um, and so within that, the British in 1917 put out what they called the Balfour Declaration. And that was Britain's promise to establishing national home for Jewish people in Palestine. So, uh, and this is where we now see what, what drive, what drives ahead. that though? Like, why were they looking for that to be a thing? Why were they looking for that to be a thing? Um, so in, around that 1900s, you have a rise of what it, of what, um, became known becomes known as Zionism, where there was a desire of Jewish people to return back to uh, to Jerusalem, to Zion. And they wanted to have their own home. Uh, they wanted to have autonomy. They wanted to stop um, experiencing persecution or 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 being held down by these different countries that they were in in modern day Europe. And so um, they some very influential individuals within England um, kind of met with uh, with Balfour and worked with him until they received this declaration. So when you say a return to this land, though, kind of as we breeze through, I mean, thousands of years of history here and, and we kind of breeze through things, we don't talk about when that exit is like, why is there a need for a return? We did touch on, you know, at, at mm. any point in time, you know, from, from 135 AD forward all the way up through uh, the early 1900s, even throughout the crusades, uh, you know, throughout Roman rule, Ottoman rule, um, that there was still a, a Jewish presence in the space. So at, at what, yeah. is, is there a point we can pinpoint where, this was a, a homeland for them and they were driven away or was it just piece by piece throughout these battles, throughout the changing of hands of control? So where is it that they find themselves distributed and even looking for a return to this area? Yeah. Well, I mean, so you you see the first kind of um, referred to as diasporas or the sendings. Um, you see the first ones with like the Babylonian empires. I mean, you're going all the way back to the beginning again. Um, when the Babylonians conquered, when the Assyrians conquered, when the Persians conquered um, that areas, they had this process of taking people in captivity to their regions um, and then letting some go back at times. But for the most part, the Jewish people were conquered and, and brought out of their ancestral homeland um, into the nations that conquered them. Um, and then you see um, you even see accounts of in um, in the book of Romans, you Book of Romans or Book of Acts, you're seeing, uh, you're hearing a report of the Caesar at the time expelling all the Jews from Italy or Rome, from uh, from Rome, Roman lands at that time. Um, and so by that point in the turn of the century, um, you're seeing that the Jewish people have been spread out around the world 
and they've been sent out and they, they have not been allowed to all return and have their own kingdom. They've kind of been sent out right. into the world to make their way. And so um, this is where you see millions and millions of them living in modern day Europe at that time. And that's why you have um, so many um, Ashkenazi Jewish individuals who lived in Europe, whether it was in um, the Russian spheres in Poland, Ukraine, um, Germany, France. Break, break Spain, down that term. I mean, you have the break down that term Ashkenazi real quick, because I, I think people hear it a lot without knowing what it means. Yeah, so Ashkenazi refers to uh, to a type of Jewish individual or a branch of Jewish individual that resided in um, like Northern Europe, Northern or Eastern Europe. Um, you also have groups that are like the Sephardic Jews, which were individuals who predominantly their ancestors had been relocated or moved to uh, Spain and Portugal. Uh, you also have like Mizrahi Jews, which means that their ancestors at some point moved more into North Africa or the Middle East. And so that term of Ashkenazi or Sephardic or Mizrahi uh, really has more to do with Jewish, like individuals of Jewish ancestry who had been relocated or moved and had been raised in Jewish communities in these different communities. And so they each had their distinctive cultural differences that were very heavily influenced on the lands that they were now living gotcha. in. So let's fast forward back, back up to 1917. Uh, Britain says, Hey, we'll, we'll give you a place to, to hang your hat. What, what comes of that? Yeah. So you see waves and waves and waves of Jewish individuals fleeing from different countries of the world. Um, fleeing from persecution, uh, in, from Nazi persecution, um, you're seeing people migrating to Palestine at that point um, in response to this opportunity to move to their ancestral homeland, um, this rise yeah. of Zionism. Uh, and so during the no, 20s again, you're, through you're the 40s— You're saying there, though, return to Palestine. Right. Which would, would, which will piss some people yeah. off that you and I would tend to be in agreement with. So. Right. So are, are <laughs> yeah. in the early 1900s, are we talking about, ha, have we found ourselves in a place where that region is being referred to as Palestine? Where, and if so, where did, where did that come into play here in the 1900s yeah. timeline? So, so after, so at that point, um, you see the British mandate of Palestine was established after um, after they, the British took control from the Ottoman empire. And so basically after like after 135, if you had to refer to that general region, but the region of Palestine also would then include over into modern day Jordan. And so you're going beyond what we now know as Israel. And it was a much broader terminology of the Palestinian, the Palestine area. Okay. And so that term had been used, but again, it was to convey a broader swathe of land. Well, I think I think than you can, most people. I think you would. compared it somewhere in your notes to like referring to the Midwest. Yeah, exactly. It it, it doesn't yeah. connote any governance, any ownership. Uh, it, there's nothing legally binding about the Midwest. Uh, you know, it just means you, mm -hmm. you appreciate you know fried foods more than most people. Yeah. Well, yeah, Midwest, yeah, definitely. Especially, I cheese. was born. I was born Fried in Illinois. Foods. I can talk all the Midwest smack I want to. 
So hey, you just gotta you, if you can make a good yeah. hot dish, you can so, make yeah. Some somebody get me another fried mayonnaise ball and let's move on here. All right, so yeah. Um, but yeah, so you see the you see the British. They have the British mandate of Palestine and Transjordan, and so at that point, you this is why they say the national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. The British are at that point referring to it as Palestine, so, and, whereas if you were a Jew, you were probably right. referring to it as Israel or and, Zion. And so, and that that national home for Jewish people in Palestine, that specific language from that Balfour Declaration. Okay. Correct. Correct. Yep. Yep, that is that is what it was referred to. But within that's the not. But then we don't see the nation state of Israel arise from that, though. Not yet. Not yet. So you see that happen a little bit further on. Um, after, after through the twenties and forties, when Jewish individuals were returning back to this land, there were becoming more frequently clashes with the local yeah. Arab population that were residing there. Um, you were you were seeing this rise of Arab nationalism in the areas surrounding it. You saw Jordan um, individuals in Jordan, a rise of a Jordanian nationalistic structure. You saw Syrian nationalism. You saw Iraqi nationalism. You saw all these different nationalistic movements occurring. And so you started seeing the Arabs within that area referring to themselves now and identifying themselves as Palestinian. Um, but it was still not a Palestinian state. It was an area that was governed by the British. Um, but as these, as these Jewish migrants are, are coming into this area and they're building their houses, they're building their communities next door to these Arab communities, you're seeing clashes over, uh, over fields, over watering holes, over wells, over the best land to have. And so in response to that, um, the United Nations um, on the behest of the British in 1947, creates a UN resolution splitting Palestine into two states, one for the Jewish people and one for the Arab people. And then they also had a special provision because Jerusalem, as the home of the three monotheistic faiths and a, a very important place for people of all nationalities, was an independent, like, international city that was not within the Jewish people. Uh, which in the state for the Jews or the state for the Arabs, but both would have access. So uh, slowing, slowing things down some, because now we're kind of coming to the meat of where we find ourselves. Um, you mm. know, the, the British in all their infinite wisdom, not that we haven't been party to these stupid post-war decisions of let's divvy up some populations and land masses and people. Um, you yeah. know, so we didn't, we didn't learn a whole lot, unfortunately, from our cousins across the pond. Um, but with this Balfour declaration, it said, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Like, Hey, we've been distributed throughout the world. Come back home. The problem is yep. people live there. It wasn't like, yep. Hey, we got a lot of empty land here. Nothing's going on with it. Come dude. We'll do We'll do this. Like, like the American West. Come, come stake a flag, pick out your 40, right? This wasn't that. This was occupied. People lived there. And so, like, yeah. was, was, there, was there any delineation? I'm assuming you've studied this declaration. Like, was there a plan for what, what, what happens with, what rights do the people who live here have, and what does this look like 
in light of, of those populations and those rights, creating this national home for Jewish people. Yeah, so the Balfour Declaration um, is more just broad brushstrokes, um, whereas you see within the UN resolution, resolution in 1947, you see them more specifically going into which ter- which regions of that area would be divvied up into um, the Palestinian state and the Jewish state, and which communities and which areas would go to which. And that's also why, because the Balfour Declaration was so vague and it didn't give those specifics of where they would go. And it was just like, we're going to make a home for you. You now have the the Jewish migrants coming in saying, all right, I'm going to go take my property. I'm going to go find my peace. I'm going to go try to live where I, where I want to live. Yeah. I, I hate the time that we live in and that there's no room for nuance because somebody somewhere is going to call me a Hamas sympathizer when I rightfully recognize hearing that, that like the obvious potential to just piss people off and make them hate each other. Yeah. Right. Like I, I live yeah. in central Florida, the, where my house sits on, you could probably pick somebody from like, I, I, I don't know the lay of the land for what the tribal regions were down here, but we'll go with the Seminoles. Cause we all know they were down here somewhere. Like if, if somebody at the UN was like, Hey, we're creating a national home for the Seminoles in central Florida. Um, going to need you to vacate, bro. Sorry, UN not going to do it. That's not going to be a thing. Yeah. 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 No, that's part of, that's part of why you have such such problems arising and why you start having those conflicts. I mean, yeah, it's, it was bound to cause problems. Um, but the people in charge at that time really, I mean, it wasn't the, the focus it was, they were being lobbied by a, a, a group of individuals who wanted the right and ability to return back to what they deemed as their ancestral homeland. And, uh, they didn't really care who was currently living there. Now the, the boogeyman version of the story that you, you just spelled out was that this was the Rothschilds who, who are, you know, they're right up there. I mean, they're right up there with the Bilderbergs and the Illuminati and the blah, 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 yakety schmackety for, you know, these evil, rich, powerful bankers in this point, in, in this context, it would be those evil Jewish Zionist bankers were, were driving this and forcing this and using their money to, to make this happen. Yeah, I mean, now you see why you have the rise of certain adherents to the, the, the conspiracies of the elders of Zion and all these other groups, um, and why you have um, this this belief system. I mean, it's definitely some conspiracy theories, but there were some very significantly influential individuals of Jewish descent who had um, some vast fortunes, and they wanted to wield their power. I mean, you have the Rothschilds, you have the Herzls. You had a, a number of individuals. Um, yeah, it's I'm I'm not I I didn't go down the conspiracy rabbit hole. It's not something I studied specifically. But, but the problem is, but, as we're looking at this 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 conflict right now, right? We're looking at this yeah. this human tragedy, and there's plenty of tragedy to go around on both sides of this thing, um, right? Mm-hmm. And but then when you're looking at all the hot takes, 
right? When you're looking at all the posts and the videos and the talking heads, that's part of what's out there, right? And so I feel like to do this subject topic, it's going to be like, okay, people are floating that. What What's the reality there? And I don't think, um, you know, everybody uses what influence they have and what resource they have to bend as much of the world to their will as they can. Most yeah. of us aren't playing with that kind of money, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at, hey, Bill Gates, he wants us all eating bugs and uh, vaccinated and far less people on the planet. That's how he's spending his billions. Elon wants to get us the heck out of here. That's how he's spending his billions, right? Like it's, uh, you know, anybody with these kind of resources, but whatever whatever your belief system is, whatever uh, your nationality is, whatever your genealogy is, whatever resources you have, you're doing whatever you can to, to again, to build, to, to bend as much of this world's will to your will as you can with the resources and influence that you have. Um, and I, you know, it's really not fair to hate just because somebody's playing the game on a bigger board than, than you are. Cause if you had the money, you'd be doing the yep. same thing to support the causes, people, whatever that, that you're into. We all do that with whatever means we have right now. Um, so I don't th- yeah. like to say that, um, you know, an entity or a family or an individual like the Rothschilds were using their resources to do that. To me, that's not like this big nefarious thing. That's like, well, of course, yeah. of course they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if that was my family and I wanted to return back to my home country where I desired to have uh, to raise my children or to, for my grandchildren to live, I would do whatever I could to make that possible as well. I think anyone who has that ability uh, can see the the sense in, in leveraging your resources to accomplish your, your goals. So as we, um, you know, as we see the, you know, we're up to the, the mid 1900s now, you know, with the UN resolution, um, Mm-hmm. How how is that enacted? Are we physically seeing people displaced? So this is where you now see um, very shortly after the UN resolution was put forth, um, you have Israel declaring their independence. Um, and this is where you now see um, individuals moved and re- like leaving their land um, in in like leading up to the actual Israeli Arab war that began at that point with the Israeli declaring independence, there were about 300,000 Palestinian individuals who read the tea leaves and they voluntarily, like they, they just left. No one kicked them off. They left because they read the tea leaves that a war was about to happen. Um, Right or wrong. They left of their own accord. They weren't forcibly relocated. Um, You do see as the war goes on and fighting occurs between the Palestinian side, the Arab side, you now see uh, Egypt joining the fight. You see Jordan joining, joining the fight. You see the different Arab nations joining the fight, trying to limit uh, the ability of the Jewish people to establish their state. You see um, different opportunities in different instances where the Arab nation themselves, whether it be the Jordanian uh, kingdom or the Egyptian kingdom would take those Arab individuals, those Palestinian people, and they would relocate them to take the civilians away from the conflict zone. You do see um, at least one instance uh, near Lod and Ramleh, 
where the Jewish army at that point, the Hag- the Haganah, um, and then which the predecessor to the IDF, uh, there was at least one instance where the Israelis forcibly relocated um, Arab residents from that area to take them out of the conflict zone. But that is the only recorded time that you're seeing that happen. Everything else um, was, and that was the only organized recorded time where the, where the, the, the Israelis relocated and forced people and so off. This- Everything else was either voluntary or civilian civilians don't want to get caught in the crossfire. They're fleeing from the action. Did, um, did the UN resolution spell out how this was supposed to go down? Was there supposed to be any system, uh, along the lines of, uh, you know, like what we would refer to as like eminent domain here in the States where it's like, okay, yeah, you got to go, but you're going to be handsomely confiscated with the caveat that the libertarian in me thinks eminent domain is hot garbage anyways, certainly how it's used these days, well beyond the scope of what it was intended for, um, where you necessarily had to have, uh, you know, like some place to store munitions or a post office, not for like, Oh, well, it's for the betterment of the community because this development we're bringing in is going to increase the tax base. No, no, that's not what eminent domain was intended for. But I digress. But was there any kind of system of like intentional relocation and compensation for that? Maybe you could opt in. Hey, I'll vacate. I'll, I'll take the paycheck. Deuces. Anything like that put in place? Uh, so that's a great question. Um, I do know that there was, they specifically looked at certain communities and certain regions that would remain under Arab authority and then areas that would be given under Jewish authority. And they established like a commission to oversee that partitioning process. Um, I would have to dive back into the specifics on that to really see um, if there was an even more detailed um, opportunity of that, but so, it really kind of, yeah. it really kind of popped off really fast. So yeah, I was gonna, it, that wasn't, it yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, we're talking about that, you know, you, you've listed the UN resolution in 47, 48, and we're talking about war in the middle of 48. I mean, everybody went yeah. to war right, right away, right from the jump. Yes. But I mean, prior to the war, you know, you, you hear the terminology thrown around. I, I have since my childhood, since the eighties, um, you know, since dealing with Arafat, we'll, we'll get to that, that time period of two state solution to, we need a two state solution. It, it sounds like the intention of the UN resolution was a two state solution. So did that mm-hmm. just go to hell in a handbasket because everybody just decided, no, we're just going to duke this out. Um, basically. Yeah. That's, that. It's probably the, the simplest terms to say it. Um, there were different reasons, some religious reasons, um, some just uh, it, you see the, the the Arab League created to now support uh, the cause of these Arabs who um, don't want to see a state for the Jewish people established amongst them. Um, there are some significant religious reasons for why uh, the adherents of Islam did not want to see that. And we can go into that if we need to. Um, but overall, very quickly upon Israel um, declaring their independence, 
you see the 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 Arab states around Israel saying, "No, partner, that's not happening. You're not claiming independence here." Uh, and they uh, swarm in and they try to kind of uh, take over the different areas where the Jewish communities had been established. And there's some they, if they had some success at first, uh, there was a ceasefire that was put into place. And then during that ceasefire, both sides kind of restocked up on ammunition and improved their their strategic opportunities. And coming out of that ceasefire is where you see uh, the Jewish uh, military at that time uh, there. They push forth and they actually take over some of these really significant areas that kind of shifted the balance of the dynamics within that conflict um, and led to them taking more territory than they would have than they would have had originally um, if the two states had just been established. So I, I, I want to take time to acknowledge um, that like I, I'm sitting here recognizing the parts of this that would hack me off too, right? Like the, hey, just no, no. I, I know you live here. I know your mom lived here. Your dad lived here. Their parents lived here. But no, move along. We're going to hand this to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But if you look back through history, never has the creation of a nation, nation state been at the beginning so peaceful and well-intentioned. The majority of the way nation states and empires come about is at the tip of the sword and the end of a barrel. So to say, you can look at this and be like, oh, man, that sucks. I'd hate to be just kicked off of my land. Cool, but that's the way every nation has come about throughout all of history. It's mm. we want that over there, and if somebody's already on it, and we think we can take it, we're going to give it a go. And if we win, it's ours. Yeah. That That's how mm -hmm. it's gone down. Sometimes, sometimes slightly kinder. Sometimes through trade, hey, Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase, heck of a deal, guy. Heck of a bargain. But typically not how it goes down. It's it's almost yeah. always through violence. Now, certainly plenty of violence has resulted from this. From mm -hmm. this. Um, and it's, it's yeah. easy to sit back in Monday morning quarterback and say, this was obviously always going to be this way, even if there weren't centuries of animosity between the dominant religions in these people groups behind this, mm -hmm. even all of that aside, just yeah. that I were displacing you for them, rather you like it or not. I would think somebody in a room somewhere could have gone, Hey, do we think this might piss them off though? Like, where was that guy? Where was that yeah. guy going? No, but are, yeah. like, are they cool with this? Do we want to, we want, we don't want to check in and just be like, Hey guys, what do you think? Yeah, no, that person definitely didn't. If, if that person was there, their voice was not strong enough yeah. to uh, carry. But I, I think it's, it's worth giving this historical context of even, even yeah. that, that cheekiness aside, this was still mm -hmm. in the, in the annals of history this was still a kinder, gentler version of um, 
let's create a a new like we're going to give some people some ownership over this area still kinder and yeah. gentler than it traditionally had been and by the way when you were being displaced by swords or bullets or spears or bombs uh nobody gave a crap if you were cool with it then either um because it's hard to have an opinion yeah. when you're dead yeah yeah tradition i mean traditionally if it would have been a regular um, conquering, it would have been by the sword or by the bullet at that point, and you wouldn't have had any choice yeah. either. And if it had been any other way, it would have just been normal run of the mill. You would have had no choice but to go, and you couldn't have said anything anyway. So Israel proper now as as this country, as an established nation state, itty bitty. Uh, we talked about that some just on our yeah. you know our, our little kind of uh, mini-so that we threw out on the socials of... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like pick your small northeastern state as an American. It's going to be a pretty good, you know, mm-hmm. Connecticut, Maine, Vermont, whatever. Take a pick, you know, roughly about that about that yeah. size. Surrounded by enemies, so like they, mm-hmm. there's not a friendly neighbor to be had, uh, and and yep. they let them know right from the jump. Israel survives that first onslaught. You talk about it. Everybody kind of digs in. And, uh, yep. you know, so that's, you know, right there, late forties, getting into the fifties, fifties are, are tense, but chill. And, uh, we get to the mid sixties and everybody decides they want to have another go. Yeah. Yeah. In, in June 5th, 1967, we have the start of the six day war. Um, but before that, I do want one point I want to mention following, uh, the, the, the first war, uh, the Air, Israeli Arab War in 48 is within that when Israel conquered that territory um, and Egypt withdrew, Jordan withdrew, and there, the fighting was over, you had about 850,000 Jewish residents from across the Arab world, ranging from Iran all the way over to Morocco, who were forcibly removed from their homes in mass and were kicked out of their countries, majority of them ending up in Israel. And you had only, I think you had about 700,000 Palestinians who were removed from that territory that Israel now controlled during that war. And so not only were the Palestinian people at that point removed from their lands, but you now had the Jewish people from across the Arab world who were also evicted from their yeah. homes following that war. Um, and I yeah. think that's an important thing to acknowledge because it's not always right. known. Yeah. Well, and it's, um, but yeah, uh, you know, a, 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 an unfortunate part of the human condition is that we're real good at identifying where we've been wronged, uh, but lack the ability to see where someone else has been. And so we want those reparations. Yeah. We want we want we want somebody to make it right for how we were wrong. But the person that we're asking to, or the people we're asking to make it right, were also wronged, and the people who wronged them were wronged. And uh, uh, we, you know, ever since you know we we took this back to Isaac and Ishmael, we want to go back a little bit farther to Cain and Abel, and we've pretty much been jerks to each other ever since. Uh, you know, yep. so everybody, you know, take it, take it back. Everybody's got their grievance. They can, they can call to somewhere there. Uh, I, I want to back up slightly. Hopefully I'm not muddy in the timeline up too much here for, uh, for the listeners, but, um, yeah, I, I just really want to understand the process and how we've, we've ended up with the borders and the walls that we're dealing with 
right now. And I feel like all of this is important to that. So under the, the UN resolution was the division of land mass more even and more equitable. So like I'm looking in your notes and seeing that it was after that initial war, like right after the establishment in 48, when we end up with these territories of Israel, the Gaza Strip, uh, and the West Bank. So, but are, are those, were lines redrawn because of the war? Were things a little more evenly divided prior to the war? Was the intention for it to be more even? So it was probably intended to be more even. If you actually look at the territory that Israel now controls, um, and in 1947, about of the land that was under the British mandate of Palestine, about 60% of it was being given to the Jewish people. And about 40% of it was being retained by uh, the Arab nation that was being uh, established. Um, the vast majority of what we now know as the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, it was even more than that, um, was still being um, owned and, and by, the, um, by the Palestinian people. Uh, Gaza, um, further up north, closer to Tel Aviv, and then into the Negev Desert. Uh, you also saw the area um, in the north. Um, through Nazareth up towards the Lebanese border that was being maintained by the Arab state. Um, and so it was really convoluted. If you actually look at, so there's some really, really good maps that you can find open source on the internet um, that show out what that partition plan looked like, the 1947 UN partition plan for Palestine and their boundaries. Uh, you had little pieces of Arab-owned territories surrounded by Jewish territories and then you would have Jewish territories surrounded by Arab territories. And it wasn't one homogenous zone where you could actually like go from one to one. You would have had to pass through someone else's zone in order to get yeah. to your zone. Kind yeah, of no, sounded, sounded awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it was a great. So, plan. but then, you know, uh, because of the war, Israel picked up some ground there and that's kind of the way. It, it stayed for a bit. Yeah. So, and, but then. Yep. They picked up. We, we yep. see that then even more so in the six day war. Yeah, correct. Yeah. In the six day war, um, you see Israel taking control of the entire Gaza strip and the entire Sinai peninsula from Egypt. You see them conquering Jerusalem and the West bank uh, of that. What we now know as the West bank. Um, they took that area from Jordan. Um, and they also took over the Golan Heights from Syria. Uh, and so, yeah, they just, they kicked butt in the six day war. They, it was, it was not even, and they were literally uh, fight. fighting crazy. everyone. Yes. Yep. Still everyone around them. They still fought. Yeah. Everyone. Um, so they gain all this land. They, they have control of the areas we're talking about today. They have, they have control of Gaza. They have control of the West bank. They take uh, literally like, I don't know listeners when the last time you looked at a map was, but the Sinai peninsula, not small. <laughs> oh, it's bigger than everything. They <laughs> yeah, have. Now. I mean, you fit multiple times in. over the size of, of just Israel itself. Um, and, yeah. and they don't hold it almost. They give, they give it back in concessions for peace. <laughs> Israel would give back territories as concessions for peace because they wanted peace so bad. They just wanted to have their state. 
they didn't want to keep fighting. And so if this area that they conquered, which by international law, they could have held on to and would have had a legal right to do so. They gave some of those back as concessions for peace, which is why you see Egypt controlling all of the Sinai Peninsula. Um, they, they held and still hold the Golan Heights though, right? Correct. Yeah. Beautiful spot. Amazing spot. Well, Little known jewel of the Israeli. Well, and my understanding of the purpose for that is that as opposed to, I mean, it's right there in the name, the Heights, uh, any fan of star Wars knows if you hold the high ground, uh, you, you win the day and it's literally just of such strategic importance that it, it's just too too risky for them to relinquish control of the height. So that's whereas they returned uh, control of the Sinai and of Gaza and of the West Bank. That's why they held on to the Golan Heights. Do I have that right? Um, yes. Yeah, they maintain control of the Golan Heights. It's very strategically important. Um, it would have been hard. I mean, the Golan Heights butts up against the Sea of Galilee. You could very easily attack... Um, the towns around the Sea of Galilee from the Golan Heights. Um, so it has some very significant strategic importance. Um, and it w- I will say it wasn't until much later that they gave back the Gaza Strip. And they didn't fully give back um, the West Bank. That was a, a different, um, a different uh, agreement in which they ceded um, authority for Palestinian control to operate it as a government entity. Um, in the West Bank. And so um, eventually they get that one back. But it, it, initially, after the Six Day War, they still maintained full control of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So, where do where I mean, we're, we're getting, I mean, we're in modern times. So, where where do we go? You know, what between there and where we find ourselves? How, how do we go from there where they gained control of those, didn't mm-hmm. get full control back to what, what we're dealing with and what we're seeing in the news today? Yeah. So, you're you're brushing through some really long, very significant times of um, uprising by the Palestinian people. You see the first Antifada um, start in 87. We're also skipping past the Yom Kippur War. Um, but and it's what we're dealing with now. This There's other stuff that's more. Pertinent. Okay, so no American um, has a clue what the word Antifada means. So break it down for us. Uh, Intifada basically just means uprising. So it was, um, it was an uprising of individuals, um, to, um, they attacked military positions, but they would also attack civilian positions. Um, it was just an uprising of, um, kind of, um, rebellion. I'm trying to think of, man, just, I don't even know the right just word. Just out of Gaza, out of the West Bank. Um, coordinated between the two, any, anywhere, anywhere where there was an Arab population within, um, the, the Israeli controlled areas, which even now, even now, 20% of the Israeli population is Arab modern days within the nation state of Israel. As of right now, outside of the West bank, outside of Gaza in Israel proper, 20% of the population is Arab. Does that percentage hold true? I, I know that there are Arabs that uh, serve as elected officials that are government officials. Does that percentage kind of hold true into those positions? Are, is there equal representation? No. Um, so the, the representation is as a result of 
the people voting and voting for for their political parties. So their government, their the the parliamentary system that Israel has, if twenty if if the population voted for the parties that are the Arab parties in mass, they would have more political control than they do. So there there is representation of the political position of the of the Arab parties, Palestinian parties. Um, they have representation in the Israeli government. Right. And they're more than capable of joining any of the coalitions that are formed. I mean, there's been there have been significant talks of from individuals recent times of some of the the, the Arab parties joining the coalitions. Yeah. And they just have stuck on certain principles that haven't allowed them to join the 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 power coalition the ruling coalition and they always remain in opposition yeah and i mean this is you know these parliamentary systems are always a little tough for us to wrap our heads around here and the way governments can quote unquote literally just dissolve like oh what do you mean they like there wasn't an election scheduled and now there is an election and it's when you're outside of a two-party system you it, it, there's not this automatic majority post election right so now you've got to do some horse trading and cobble together a majority and then that majority quote unquote forms the government and that's where you know you're picking your speaker and assign it you know all that type of stuff then flows out of that but if that coalition falls yep. apart you know if you've got a tenuous majority and you know some chunk of it goes nah screw you guys your government just disappeared yep which is why Israel has had what five or six elections in the last like five or six years, if if that yeah. many years, because they the the majority is so slim that if you have one of the coalition partners drop out, you no longer have a majority in parliament, so you have to have whole new elections. Unreal. I mean, I guess we're not too far off with our own inability to uh, select a speaker of the house right now. And anyway, we, we might see some coalition yeah, building boy, here boy, real boy. soon. Um, boy, but boy, um, boy. so, you know, coming up into the, the first intifada, what does leadership look like in Gaza and in the West Bank? Is there any independent uh, yeah. governance or anything like that in those areas at that time? Yeah. So during, during like the sixties and seventies and into the eighties, um, you see um, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, rise to power. And they, um, they're kind of the entity that is trying to reassert um, Palestinian control, and they're trying to resist uh, the Israeli government, the, Israel, the state of Israel, um, and re, um, like they're, trying, they're trying to overthrow the occupier. Um, and you see them... Um, clashed with the kingdom and the government in Jordan, and they're kicked out. The PLO is kicked out of Jordan, and the PLO is brought and kind of headquarters in southern Lebanon. And so you see, um, that's where you then have the different attacks against. I mean, we we all the American embassy in Beirut. Um, we have that attack um, that was um, organized and during that time frame. You also have Black Black September. Uh, you have the the killing of the different Israeli the Israeli um, Olympians that are all orchestrated by the PLO, and so you have the this entity trying to organize and represent the Palestinian people, um, and so 
uh, at a certain point, um, as a result of the Antifada and the PLO, you have what resulted in the Oslo Accords, um, which is where we then see some official representation and an official kind of Palestinian government entity that's recognized to represent the Palestinian people being put forth. Is this where uh, Arafat comes on the scene? Yes, I believe so. Yep. Yep. He was in the PLO. I mean, is it... Um, uh, we might be getting too far out of both our wheelhouses at this point. I mean, is it is it a fair comparison to like, um, you know, the the IRA? Is that what we're looking at? Is more? I mean, it's uh, it's guerrilla tactics. Yeah. It's, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. You're seeing. I I think that's a that's a fair kind of correlation for something that we might be more f- familiar with is the history of what the IRA did in, in Northern Ireland um, and then trying to uh, represent the desires of their people to have their own system of government um, and represent themselves. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good kind of comparison. And yes, to confirm the PLO was formulated in 1964. Um, and so it, uh, yeah, Yasser Arafat, um, was was one of the predominant leaders, one of the main leaders in that organization, um, and they were really responsible for the first Intifada and for um, trying to represent the Palestinian people at that point. So it's it's post Oslo Accords. This is when we start to see some independent governance and control come back to these areas of uh, the Gaza Strip and of the West Bank. And are and are those like how autonomous are those two zones regions? I, how does that operate? Yeah, well, until until 2005, the Gaza Strip was still um, under Israeli control. Um, but following like following 87, you see um, the P the the PLA that are the Palestinian Authority um, coming to power, and you see more working with in the West Bank to oversee what's happening among the Palestinian people in the West Bank. Um, and so that's where you then see that happening. Um, and then with the second Intifada resulted in more concessions, um, which happened the second Intifada 2000 through 2005, um, resulting in more concessions from Israel for peace. Um, Gaza Strip at that point and the West Bank were given autonomous control by the Palestinian people. Uh, the Israeli government, forcibly removed the Jewish settlers or the Jewish, the, the Jewish communities within some of those areas and took them out uh, of fully out of the Gaza Strip, removed some of them from West Bank's communities um, and, and allowed the Palestinian people, uh, the Palestinian Authority to have more political authority um, to fully oversee the governance of certain regions and then to have a cooperative governance um, over other regions. And so um, in the West Bank, you see a situation now where you have basically three types of zones, where you have a, a one zone which has um, political control and like policing and military control overseen by the pa- Palestinian Authority. You have a second zone which is political uh, oversight by the Palestinian Authority, but military oversight by the Israeli uh, military. And then you have a third zone, 
which is more um, Israel controls both. Kind of confusing. And Gaza in 2005, following 2005, Gaza is full Palestinian Authority oversees policing, oversees politics, oversees military, all of that. Israel fully removes itself from the Gaza Strip in 2005. Somewhere in in the mix here, we got real close to some legitimate peace agreements. Yeah? Yeah, I think, I mean, you had the, the Camp David um, Accords, and so you see these different negotiations. Um, but there was always something that the Arab party, the Palestinian party would not agree to. And I think that's one of the things you see, um, you see massive concessions, you see massive attempts to establish a two state solution. Um, the Israeli, um, the Israeli government, the Israeli leadership wanting to find a way to have lasting peace, willing to give away vast chunks of territory currently controlled by Israel in exchange for peace and the Palestinian leadership uh, in those negotiations saying it wasn't I mean, the, enough. If I remember correctly, because this I, I was alive for, I think I've got a few years from you, so I'm not where you come into the timeline here, but uh, um, like the, the offer was made at some point, I can't remember if it was the Camp David Accords or not, to, to revert to the 1947 borders from the UN resolution, mm-hmm. correct? I mean, that offer has been made. I wouldn't know exactly when it was made, but I know that that one was uh, an offer that was made during those negotiations. And that wasn't, that wasn't enough. They wanted more. When does Hamas come into play? Uh, so Hamas comes into play um, as an elected political entity in 2006 uh, in the Gaza Strip. And so... Um, following the Israelis pulling out of, of the Gaza Strip in 2005, um, Hamas, uh, I believe Hamas had started being organized during some of the uprisings and some of the intifadas to kind of create animosity. Um, but fully as an elected political entity, it was established, it came into power and into prominence in 2006. And they were elected into political control of Gaza, ousting the PLO as the ruling political entity. And that was legitimate. I mean, that was uh, like that was that was will of the that, people. I mean, election. As, it's. I mean, it's as legitimate as a Russian election. <laughs> okay. So I mean, it's also as as. It's also probably as realistic as some of our uh, some of our voting systems currently with electronics. Um, I don't know. You want to go down? You want to go down that conspiracy? <laughs> uh, another podcast, another time. Um, <laughs> yeah. What if any are the significant differences between Hamas and and PLO leadership, though? Um, Hamas is that's a great question. Hamas was established um, with one of their primary and really one of their sole purposes just to eradicate the Jewish people and the Jewish population within that area. Um, That's one of their main aspects of their charter. And so they were much more from the jump a 
find the Jewish people, remove them from the face of the so earth. So is it entity. is it fair to say that um, you know, not to um, downplay um, their their tactics, but that the PLO was was more traditionally a political organization versus a more ideologically driven Hamas? Uh, the PLO was willing to engage more politically in the pursuit of peace, um, in the pursuit of, uh, of acquiring political authority that they could then negotiate from than we have ever seen Hamas. Hamas has um, very, very strongly been on the side of a um, military or um, violent actor instead of a political actor that wants to work for the betterment of the Palestinian people. Um, under the PLO, you, you would see things being done to provide humanitarian aid to their people. You would see them working on social welfare aspects, uh, whereas with Hamas, you don't see that. You see humanitarian aid being taken to use to make bombs, to um, build terror tunnels, to build the infrastructure for their um, terroristic infrastructure. That's, I mean, that's their primary focus is not on helping the Palestinian people. It's on using um, any resources that they get to better their position to attack the Jewish state. And so this is, uh, I'm looking at your timeline here. So this is 2005, uh, 2006, Hamas comes into power um, in Gaza, not, not in the West Bank, totally separate. Totally separate. West Bank and Gaza, totally separate entities. Um, you still see Fatah, which is a separate um, Palestinian uh, political entity. Uh, Fatah has had some military aspects. I, that would also be one that we would say um, is, Israel could probably work with Fatah uh, and, and find some common ground, find some ability to negotiate for the betterment of the Palestinian people, um, whereas you're not seeing that gotcha. with Hamas. And And then just from 2007 on, Hamas remains in power in Gaza. They're running the ship. Yeah, so in 2007, they had a civil war within Gaza, um, overthrowing the other kind of the other military entities. You still see um, Islamic Jihad, um, and, and you'll see some smaller terroristic organizations that also have yeah. residents in Gaza. But Hamas became the predominant power and authority, both politically and militarily, in Gaza. So in Hamas is looking around Gaza, seeing groups like Islamic Jihad, and going, no, 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 no. You guys aren't hardcore enough for us. Yeah, yeah, you're seeing, you're seeing little, you're seeing different Because a real bunch of sweethearts, Islamic Jihad, up. I mean, just lovely people themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're 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 seeing you're seeing the different gangs within Gaza, um, and you're seeing which one wants to be more radical, and you're seeing which one wants to uh, take more territory and establish more control. And okay, well, you're not as important as you think you are, so we don't have to worry about you. You can just keep doing you. You can do the low level stuff. We're going to take all the big boys. So we're talking about these geographic areas that 
have persisted going all the way back to 48 between Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. Um, mm-hmm. When do we see... Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm really intrigued in how these differing relationships between these regions have, have developed in that, um, well, well, when do we see this major deterioration between Israel and Gaza in the, you know, in the sense of, um, the, the strict borders and the checkpoints and the restriction of movement, that type of stuff. When does that come into play? Yeah, so you you see the beginnings of that in 2007 um, when Hamas takes full control of Gaza by force. Uh, You see Egypt and Israel imposing a blockade of Gaza to limit the movement of people and goods in and out of Gaza. Hang on, hang on. And again, it's Egypt. Yes, yes, you beat me to it. Repetition is the key to learning. Interesting, interesting that that majority Muslim, majority Arab nation of Egypt— participated in that blockade. So I think it's important to note continues, continues to participate um, in overseeing the facilitation of goods and people in and out of Gaza. And and why that's an important note is as we hear this case being made for Gaza being an open air prison, you're hearing that made over and over and over again for Hamas apologists right now. Well, if it is, if in fact that's true, then Egypt's a portion of the guards on the prison walls then. Because you look at a map and it's easy to think that Gaza is completely encased by either coastline or Israel, and it is not. It shares border with Egypt. Yep. Correct. And and so Correct. It, 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 that's the point. So how, how do things... Okay, one... Is the is the relationship between Israel and the West Bank then just just significantly different from how they interact with Gaza? Yes, uh, for the most part, yeah. Um, there is so because there is more intermingling in the West Bank. So over time, you're seeing different Israeli settlements, different communities that have been established within the West Bank, and so you're seeing much more pockets of Jewish presence within the West Bank. Um, you're seeing more collaboration. You are seeing very significant areas of resistance to the Jewish occupation or to, to Jewish presence uh, within the West Bank. Um, but there has been a significant more level of work to find some way to live together, even though the standard of living and the infrastructure development and the economic abilities and the, the, the quality of life is still significantly lower in the West bank than it is in Israel proper. Um, and again, uh, not all of that has to do with the Israelis. A lot of that in my opinion has to do with the leadership of the individuals overseeing the, the West bank political entities. Um, so when we hear, because, uh, you know, you don't have to be particularly tuned in to be aware of the controversy surrounding Israeli settle- settlements. So when, when we hear about these Israeli, Israeli settlements, is that exclusively to the region of the West Bank? That's not something that's occurring in or has, has occurred in or around Gaza. 
any settlement that was in Gaza was removed in 2005. So when when Israel took control of the region that we now know as Gaza um, back many, many years ago, they established some settlements there, which are just communities. That's areas where um, towns and villages that were established to house and home Jewish settlers. Um, And so um, even around Gaza right now, um, all of these communities that we just heard were attacked, whether they were a kibbutz or a moshav, um, people would refer to them as settlements, but they are Israeli communities within Israel proper. Um, But more of those types of communities and towns were in Gaza after 2005. Every one of those was removed. Every person, every Jewish person was removed from that area. Um, But you still see communities within the West Bank that are being built. You're seeing full-scale communities, full-scale towns in the West Bank that are just populated by Jewish Jewish individuals. So it's not hard to understand um, the, the Palestinian side of that taking issue with those settlements. What's the Israeli justification for yes. those settlements at this point? Uh, the Israeli justification would be that the West Bank is basically entirely the ancient location of Judea and Samaria. Um, so that is the old kingdoms of Israel and Judah um, are what we see as the West Bank. And so that is where if there was a specific region that the Jewish people would call their ancestral homeland, um, as much as they are now in control of the plains, the mountainous regions of Judea and Samaria are where they would more associate their ancestral homelands. Hebron, the city of Hebron, is in the West Bank, and that is where you actually have the tombs of the patriarchs, of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac. These people are buried in Hebron. But they got to know they're poking the bear with these settlements. They Oh, they very much know they're poking the bear with the settlements but they want their home. And they, there have been, there have been times of take out some of the settlements. There have been times of expand the settlements. There have been times of, um, just slow down on the settlements to appease, uh, certain negotiations. Um, but you have it not necessarily being fully outrageously and like vocally supported by the Jewish government to increase the settlements. But you do see promotionals for individuals who are willing to go settle there. They know it's poking the bear, but that's where their homeland is. Does the government fund the construction on these? Ooh, that's a question that I would have to look up. So I'm wondering, and you might not be privy to this, like, has any part of negotiations with leadership of the West Bank ever been, we won't build any more settlements, but, but would would you allow, will will you open up as a, as a matter of policy and, and enforce and protect if, if a, if a Jewish family wants to purchase property in your territory? that they can participate in society in the West Bank, the same as Arab families can participate in society in Israel. Has that ever been floated? Is that ever an option? I don't think they would ever float that one. 
I, I, that would be I, as far as a negotiation. I don't know. That's that's something that has ever been published. If it has, I haven't seen it. Um, but I think there's there is enough fear by the Jewish population that they would not try to place themselves in and among the West Bank Arab population. It's a different story for yeah. Arabs living in, in Israel proper. Your neighbor could be Arab. They're fine with that. There are specific communities within Arab, Arab within Israel proper that are more predominantly Arab, um, where you don't see as much intermingling, but you do see a number of communities in Israel proper where there is massive intermingling. Do those of residents, but you, do those I, residents yeah. tend to refer to themselves as Arabs, or do they refer to themselves as Palestinians? The ones that that tend to live in Israel proper. Uh, that's going to get down to my experience and, and some people will say I'm wrong. Some people will agree with me. My experience has more to do with whether they are Christian or Muslim. If they are Muslim, they typically, in my experience, refer to themselves as Palestinian. And if they were Christian, they more readily referred to themselves as Arab Christian Israeli. So, I, I mean, we're basically caught up to modern times. So, I, you know, I really want to, um, and we're, we're long here, and I'm okay with that. We're going to keep going. I, that, nobody has to listen, um, except my mom, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I want to draw some on now your, your personal experience in country. Um, you know, how, how difficult was it for, for you? Is it for anyone to, um, you know, did were did you ever go into Gaza? Is that was that difficult for you to do while you're in country? Is that difficult for an Israeli to do? Should they even want to? Is it difficult to go in and and visit the West Bank? I, I really want an understanding of what travel between movement between these regions looks like, both for the nationals that live there, for people from outside. Mm. What what is the reality of that? Yeah. So. Um... In my experience, I never went to Gaza. I never tried to go to Gaza. Um, I had roommates um, and classmates who were working with NGOs that provided humanitarian aid to Gaza. Um, so they would go in occasionally. Um, but it's not something Gaza is a different animal. Um, that would be I mean, my my the best comparison I have would be trying to get into North Korea if I was if I was if I was wanting to go visit North Korea, uh, it would be like me trying to go to Gaza. You have to have specific reasons for why you're getting into Gaza. Now, Israel does allow a significant number of work permits for Gazans to come into Israel to work. So there is a different flow. If you are a resident of Gaza, Israel does allow for work permits for you to come work in Israel. And they make substantially more money than they would do if they were working in Gaza. Um, West Bank. I have been to a number of West Bank towns. I have not been to all of them. It wasn't where I spent the majority of my time, um, but I was able to go tour around different West Bank communities that were Arab communities. I felt safe. I felt fine um, in those areas. You do, I mean, it's with any region of the world, you do have to keep your head on a swivel. Um, and so um, I felt safe in East Jerusalem. I felt safe in Hebron or Hebron. Um, Bethlehem, some of the other communities I went to, um, and you would see Jewish individuals in some of those areas, but they would not go to certain regions of those communities. 
was is that uh, difficult to get in and out? Uh, it's not difficult to get in and out. If you are an Arab resident of the West Bank, you have to have a permit to get into Israel proper or into certain areas of Jerusalem. So it is harder for um, for an Arab resident of the West Bank to get into Israel. You t- you can get work permits. You can get other permits to tour and visit certain things to go to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, but it's not the most accessible um, on the Jewish side. You can. There are some areas where it's restricted for Jew for Israelis to go to those regions. Um, more more difficult for residents of the Gaza Strip to obtain work permits and entry into Israel and get back and forth than it is for residents of the West Bank, or is it the same? I don't have a an experience with that. My understanding of them would be that it would be harder for a Gazan resident to get a work permit or access to Israel proper um, than it would for a resident of the West Bank. I know I my I believe there's a substantially more there's a substantially greater number of work permits um, and even just permits to go visit family um, and other things from the West Bank. Um, but that's also going to depend on which communities you come from. There's some security. There's a lot of security factors that come into that one. So with regards to this concept of Gaza being this this open air prison. Um, why why doesn't Egypt just open up the gates? Well, that's a great question. Um, a lot of it has to do with the political um, position of the ruling government in Egypt. Um, as of right now, Hamas has a better relationship with has relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is another terrorist organization that the Egyptian government is not a big fan of because the Muslim Brotherhood, used to be in power in Egypt, and then they've had their back and forths with that group. Um, And so um, Egypt does not want to allow in individuals that could be affiliated with Hamas um, because they would be more sympathetic to the West Bank, or not the West Bank, they'd be more sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, You also have um, Egypt and their economy is not at a place where it could potentially like they don't want to take the risk of now having to take care of 2.2 million refugees. Uh, And you don't see any other Arab nations saying, Hey, we can take some of your refugees. We have space. We have the ability to care for them. So you're, you, you don't see Arab nations um, stepping forward saying, Hey, give us your poor, you're, you're tired, you're weary. Um, We'll take care of them so that they can get well, out of this what, place. What, uh, what you see them yeah. staying in what, refugee what camps. What drives that though? So that's that's regularly touted on on the pro-Israeli side of this argument uh, to illustrate like how untrustworthy and how detestable the Palestinian people are. Like, look, all these surrounded Arab, surrounding Arab nations are like, oh, look how mean and bad Israel is. None of them are opening up the doors to take. They don't even want them. They're so detestable. What drives that relationship with these surrounding Arab nations where they haven't opened up their doors and welcomed in these people? Man, it's, it's sad that anyone would look at the Palestinian people and say that they're detestable or that they're not trustworthy. Like, 
a, my heart goes out to, um, to those people. Cause I like, I have a number of friends who work with that population group who I know people from that population group and they're great people. Um, and so any, any commentator or any political individual that would say, um, that they're being kicked, that they're being rejected from these areas because, um, that they're Palestinian and Palestinians aren't good. Um, I think it's sad. I think it more has to do with, um, as much as they are also Muslims, as much as they are also Arabs, they are not of my country. They are not of my tribe. And it's more important for me to look after my tribe and my country that, and our people than it is someone else's people. So it's that, and, and I'm, I'm going to kind of seed in some of our, you know, I, I threw out for, you know, on the socials for some questions for tonight and we, we had some stuff come back. So, uh, one that, that speaks to kind of what we're talking about right now is, you know, how, how, if at all do, does, uh, do Israeli and Egyptian relations influence, you know, what's going on in Gaza and what maybe the challenges for the people living in Gaza experience? Oh, you know, um, for a certain, I mean, uh, the Egyptian relations or the Saudi, well, um, well, there's that, I mean, that was one of the questions as well is, um, you know, for mm-hmm. all of the, the bluster about, um, you know, Donald Trump was going to lead us into world war three. Um, he was the only president in modern history, not to start any new wars and kind of against yeah. all odds spearheads these Abraham Accords where we're we're mm-hmm. starting to see these Arab countries in the Middle East officially recognize Israel, which was mm-hmm. ground I mean groundbreaking, unbelievable. Groundbreaking. Um, groundbreaking. Yeah. And so you know, one of the questions that was posed to us was, you know, do you feel your 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 understanding, your knowledge of the history, your knowledge of the region is, you know, and obviously you wouldn't have any firsthand knowledge of this, but what does your gut tell you on did the opening the door to the normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia play a role in the timing of these attacks that we're seeing now? Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of individuals who are in agreement. Um, a lot of analysts and very educated, knowledgeable individuals are in agreement that the normalization opportunity and the normalization um, conversations between Israel and Saudi Arabia had to, had a role to play in why Hamas um, chose now to attack. Um, the bigger the bigger gameplay, the bigger aspect there is the the influence and the fight for influence and superiority between Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, and which one gets to be the big kid on the block, um, where you have Iran who is well known as a state sponsor of terror and they're supplying and sponsoring Hezbollah. They're supplying Hamas. Uh, and so, um, they're trying to flex their power. Um, they're also, uh, Iran is also, um, very much has, a has, relationships and a role to play in the Syrian government and in certain areas of Iraq. And so you see them trying to establish their superiority in the Middle East. And on the other side, you have Saudi Arabia um, working with the Sunni um, states and the Sunni groups within the Middle East, trying to establish their dominance. 
and kind of be that balance of power against Iran. Um, so as Israel wants to normalize relations with Morocco and normalize relations with the UAE and, and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, you're seeing the economic ability and the economic impact potential be a very big threat to the balance of power uh, and threaten Iran's ability to maintain their their status on the block. And so um, they would want to do anything they can to disrupt the ability for Israel to normalize relations and, and find peaceful relations and establish economic relations and um, and benefit the Saudi Arabian, the Saudi, um, the Saudi groups and, and any company that is in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's yeah, it, there's a lot of dynamics yeah. within that. Do we see, I mean, as Americans, most of us are, are familiar with the terminology and the concept of the Sunni and Shia factions within the Islamic faith from, um, you know, you know tri- essentially tribal warring within Iraq. But do we? Is there any component of that at play with this relationship between Hamas with Iran? I, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say you you don't need to be an expert in the area to understand that Hamas was incapable of an attack on this scale without funding and support from Iran. Yeah, it's. I mean. Historically, you would think that uh, Hamas received funding from a number of different state actors in the Middle East. Um, and at one time, and I'm at one time, they probably got some funding from individuals that within Saudi Arabia or Qatar, Bahrain. Um, I mean, it's the same thing with the Taliban and Osama bin Laden was from he's a Saudi national. Um, so you, even the Saudi government might have a position one way, but you still have people with money and funding within their country who can be completely against what the government is trying to do. Um, so you, you, you do see the predominant supporter of Hamas financially, um, military assets. You're seeing Iranian made drones that were delivered and available, uh, to Hamas in this attack. You're seeing Iranian made rockets that were, that were transported to and launched from, uh, from Gaza. Um, over a number of years, so you have very you have established links, support financially, militarily, strategically from Iran to assist Hamas in uh, combating the state of Israel. And it's uh, it, it, are are there differences there in factions, or is this a deal where it's like the ends justify the means, and uh, you know? They're willing to set differences aside kind of deal. Yeah. I, so Hamas is a, is a Sunni, um, is, is a Sunni, is their beliefs within Islam are part of the Sunni belief system. Um, whereas Iran is a Shia belief system and, and the nuances within the differences of religion there. Um, so whereas traditionally, Hamas as a Sunni group and Iran as a Shia group should not be getting along. Uh, you have a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and, Oh, you will give me how much money for me to not care that you're Shia. Yeah. Okay. How do we fix it? 
how do we fix it? How do we fix the entire Middle East problem? Um, well, as a, as a, as a believer in Jesus, my answer is everyone comes to know the mercy and forgiveness and love of Jesus. Um, but on a real, on a, on a current thought outside of my religious belief, um, as far as the Gaza Israel conflict at the moment, uh, I think there is a significant number of individuals with much better military strategic minds in mind and, and experience in it um, and pundits um, and strategists who are in uh, who are all in agreement that probably the only thing that can be done is to eradicate Hamas in its entirety from Gaza. Push them all out. There is no more Hamas in Gaza. Anyone ascribing to be a member of Hamas leaves the face of this earth. And to be and to be clear, very specifically, you're saying Hamas, not collectively the people yes. of Gaza. Correct. Correct. Hamas in and of itself. You will. I think it's. There are some very interesting reports of the actual number of individual Palestinian individuals within Gaza who actually support Hamas and how many are just going along with them because if they didn't, they would be uh, ostracized. They would not be supported. They would even potentially be killed. Um, you, you have a, an oppressive regime that only cares about their ability to attack Israel they don't care about supporting the Palestinian people in any way. And so even though um, you do have Palestinian individuals within Gaza who are not members of Hamas, who will celebrate anything Hamas does because they ideologically agree with Hamas, you do have Palestinian individuals in Gaza who do not ideologically agree with what Hamas does. And they do not agree with the mass slaughter and killing of innocent civilians. They would say, okay, if you're willing to fight the, the military of Israel, we will support you in that, but we will not support you killing innocent civilians. Those, there are those people in Gaza. There are those Palestinians out there, and those people you can work with. Those people you can become friends with. Those people you can negotiate with. Um, but if you, for the, for the Israeli government to establish a long-term security arrangement in Gaza, they are going to have to do what needs to be done to remove Hamas from Gaza. And beyond that, I don't know, like that's, if there's a better strategic mind out there, please call Kale, hit up the DMS, jump on a recording, share with us that strategy. Um, everyone that I've heard of from within Israel and outside of Israel, that is basically the only thing that they can see. Do you do you think it's going to have to be a situation where they return to an arrangement similar to prior to the Oslo Accords, where it's there is not independent governance and control within the Gaza Strip? It's 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 just totally Israeli controlled. And do you think you could see? A, I, yeah. <laughs> and okay, so here's some American folly coming out of me, right? Because we think um, we're we're big fans of the fact that we can just hand people democracy and it'll be awesome for them. And the problem is de democracy that's given and not, and again, um, 
uh, understanding fully we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. That's intentional. Direct democracy doesn't work. It's a freaking nightmare. Um, so I'm talking about democratic principles here. Um, you know, not uh, not direct democracy, which is idiocy. Um, so, you know, two wolves and one sheep voting on what to have for dinner. Um, but yeah. um, is there any potential to go in, remove that control? Not necessarily... Um, immediately remove checkpoints, remove walls, those types of things, but come in and um, your Israeli citizens, not, not in, not in all the ways that Israeli citizens are right now. I, I don't think you want to blanket immediately go, Hey, we're going to put you in the IDF for two years. Have fun. Right. But yeah. the, we're going to yeah. come in, um, you know, Infrastructure is going to be taken care of. Schools, hot, like you're going to be protected and provided for to the full extent that we protect and provide for Israeli citizens. You have a vote. You you have a vote in Israeli government, not in independent governance here, but in the government that is overseeing the the area in which you live in. You you have a vote. And uh, we're we're in control now, but you have you have a say. You can be heard, and you come in and you make sure the water's on and the lights are on and uh, the roads work and that there's medical services and that there's educational services. You do what you do for citizens, and you go. Is there any potential for that to work? I think we both. I think our hearts want that to be possible but our minds say how would anyone ever like how could you actually realistically get that to happen um it would man it would take so much transition and it would be such a long road i i wished that that would be possible i wish that that would be possible to where they could integrate the the peaceful Palestinian uh, but, people. Uh, but here's my thing. Like, in, it, we country, have, but... like we have the test case, right? Like you see Arab uh, Muslims or otherwise happily and willfully living in Israel, participating in Israeli society, participating in Israeli government. So there, like there's just some disconnect there between – now understanding that the people who, who live in Gaza spend their entire lives from birth – uh, under extreme propaganda, there's never been an issue and a problem in their life yeah. that has not been blamed on Israel. And yeah, it takes yeah. you can't. It takes a long time to just undo. You can't just go in and undo that. Uh, yeah, but you like you start to demonstrate. Like if you can physically show, if they can feel and see what you've been told's not right, that. Like the the second they can see firsthand, oh wait, no, they came in and they they didn't level my house. They turned the power back on. They ran the new power line. They fixed the school. They fixed the hospital. Wait, I can I can vote. Like I can vote. You're gonna let me vote? I could run for I I can run for, I can run for office. I, I, I like I'm not saying anything would be instantaneous, but we have the te- like you have that twenty percent of the Israeli population. That that is Arab. That's like happily and healthfully and successfully participating in society. 
Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that the biggest difference is that that 20% has their ancestors have realistically been in Israel since 1947 or earlier, and they didn't flee um, from their homes. And so they grew up with the state of Israel. Um, and so whereas you they can see that the integration of the Arab people and, and the, the Arab people in Israel, um, I mean, they've had polls that ask, hey, if you are you happy with the with the government of Israel? And they're like, no. Like, would you like to go live in the West Bank or Gaza or somewhere else in the Arab world? And they're like, <laughs> no, keep me in Israel. My standard of living, my quality of life, my my opportunities for advancement in life are so much higher here in the Jewish state than they would be if I was growing up in Tunisia or Libya or Iraq. They have a much better quality of life than anywhere else in the Muslim world. Um, and so they're happy to be in Israel from that point, although they're not happy with everything that the Israeli government does. And there are things that can definitely be fixed um, within that. Um, there, there are some other issues there within the perspective of um, the of the Arab people who are in Israel and the way they are viewed by the Palestinian people who are in Gaza and the West Bank, and that's a that's another topic. Um, I mean, you know, in order for the people of Gaza to be transitioned into that type of inter integration you would almost have to have a 40 years wandering in the desert so that a generation dies off. Yeah. Right. Like we're going to have to go biblical and they're going to have to go wander in the desert for 40 years while they're trying, while they're experiencing this better lifestyle with the cooperation of the Israeli government and the Jewish government. Wow. But I don't know how to make like that. I don't know well, how to make that happen. Right or wrong, I think they're about to lose a significant portion of a generation. So I, I, I'm not saying that, that I, you know, hopefully there's no hint of glee or anything in my voice in that. I, that's that's not a, a rah rah bloodlust. Go get them. I, you, you, it's a sad, sad, sad fact. Sad fact. Um, and I, I mean, you just look at the video and the pictures. And the story's coming out of Israel right now. And it's not, it's, it's hard to fault Israel for whatever their response is. Yeah, they are, they are at their ends. They, I have seen posts from friends who I love dearly and they are typically very gracious and merciful and loving. And they, um, they want the response to be without mercy. And it, it's sad that some of the, some of the, like, it's sad to see that this is where the hearts are going, where the hearts are getting um, more um, callous to the humanity on both sides. Um, but as this conflict progresses, it's going to be harder for each side to see the humanity of the other. It's going to be harder for them to let bygones be bygones. It's going to be harder for them to operate in forgiveness. It's going to be harder for them to operate in love and mercy. Uh, you know, I, I, having kids of my own, as, as regular listeners will know, 
when when you see things in the news, it's it's different. Watching the news, seeing things like this, it's just it just is just different after. Because when when you see footage of whatever the news event is involving children, you don't see the kids in in the film, you don't see the kids in the picture, you see your kids. And it's it's hard yeah. not to see the images we're seeing coming out of Israel. What was done to I mean, we say kids, babies, toddlers, infants. It's hard not to look at that and go, yeah, let's slip the dogs of war. Whatever ha- whatever happens, happens. That's that's on you now. But it's no less tragic or sad for the loss of life of innocent Palestinian children. They're no more at fault. They're yeah. no more at guilt. Yeah. The, but the, the difference is in this conflict, the Israeli children were targeted. And the Palestinian mm-hmm. children will be collateral. The death will yeah. be tragic, but their death isn't the intent. And I just I can't wrap my head around from from a from a military from a political standpoint. I don't understand the end game for Hamas because you could have done something on the scale of what they did and targeted checkpoints, targeted uniformed soldiers maybe even uniformed officers, I wouldn't condone it. Um, military, yeah. m- military. I would understand mil- it. I would understand it. From yeah. The military military installations in the whole world. Much of the world would hold yeah. Israel back. The cries for the cries for yeah. restraint would be much stronger. And you could make mm-hmm. a stronger case mm-hmm. for, we're just an, an oppressed people fighting for our freedom. We're just freedom fighters. Yeah. Um, you can't. You don't get yeah. to be just freedom fighters when you're killing children and grandparents and burning families alive and and, and raping and kidnapping. There, there's no moral high ground to be had there. None. Nope. Nope. No. Yeah, you lost. You lost all validity. You've lost, like any any opportunity that you had to do this legitimately to have a validity behind your actions is gone. Yeah. And it's, it's like my heart goes out to like, you see the, you see images and you see videos coming out of Gaza and coming out of the West bank. I saw this one video. Um, and it was like of an eight or 10 year old, eight or nine year old girl. Um, I, I, I believe it was from the West Bank or, or Gaza specifically. Um, and it's this girl who is just crying out that she like she doesn't know what to do. All she wants to be is a doctor so she can help her people. But her her house is being flattened. The buildings around her are being flattened. They're trying to pull people out of rubble. She has no idea what she can do to help. She has no idea how she can actually learn to be these things to help her people or to help her family. And like your heart cries out for this girl, your heart cries out for these people who are just innocent bystanders in the wrong place at the absolute worst time they could be there. And you want to do everything you can to keep harm from coming to them. But you then have individuals who 
take their their hatred for another person, another group of people, and their lack of any morality, and they place their um, their 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 positions to attack and to strike from within schools, within hospitals, within apartment complexes, next to every single place of peace there should be. And they launch their attacks from that place and they hide behind this little girl. They hide behind these children. They hide behind the old women. And they say, you can try to kill me, but you're going to kill these people. How do you fight against that? How do you take out those individuals who are absolutely barbaric? Who have no morality? It is just evil incarnate without having collateral damage. That is the hundred billion trillion dollar question. That is, if you could tell the Israeli government and the Israeli military how to remove these individuals without harming any civilian, guarantee you they would jump at that opportunity. You can't say the same about that for Hamas. You can't say the same about that for Hezbollah. They are out there not just to take out Israeli military installations, not just to combat the Israeli military and soldiers, but they are out there with the intent and purpose of harming Israeli civilians. Uh, People suck, man. <laughs> the world without Jesus. The world without uh, Jesus. You know, the point in why I wanted to to do an episode like this is that it's it's not a simple situation. There are no easy answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at least I I think understanding is where it has to begin. Uh, and I think it's yeah. such a, a big, broad topic, and I think it it's it can feel so hopeless because um you know for my generation it just feels like it's it's i i mean we we ran through the history forget my generation we all feel like it's been going on forever and we feel like it will go on forever so why mm-hmm. why bother trying and you know i was listening to um Jocko's unraveling uh podcast this week and they were breaking this down and it was it, there was a real apt description there was it's um, you, what you have here isn't a problem because a problem can be solved. What you have is a condition and yeah. conditions can only be managed. Mm. And it's, it's wow. oil and water. No matter how many times you shake up the bottle, they're going to separate. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I think, um, the, the best we can hope for right right where we're where things are at right now is the least amount of bloodshed possible and that's not me calling for israeli restraint i would not be restrained yeah. um you've got yeah. to be careful not to become the thing you're fighting um and yeah. i i that's much easier said than done. Um, mm-hmm. 
I, I mean, we go all the way back to the, the top of the podcast. Imagine a scenario where you're rejoicing that your daughter was killed. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's yes. the better alternative. Because that was her. the kindest, gentlest outcome for her. And to yeah. say, oh, yeah. don't, don't go flatten it all. Um, yeah. Yes, don't go flatten it yeah. all. But um, it, it's tough not to recognize the desire. It can be tough to separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but you have to you have to keep that understanding of humanity and that it's not everyone and that there are innocents on both sides. Uh, it's yeah, it, it's, it's an unbelievable, uh, unfortunate, um, sad, horrifying, enraging situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Well, I appreciate you spending the time, man, to come and, and give some perspective, give some insight, give some uh, some wisdom. Again, I, I don't think we solved anything tonight, and I, I, I didn't think we were going to, um, you know, no. but, but hopefully both of the people that have stuck with us for all three hours have, have at least gained some additional understanding and, uh, and perspective on things and, uh, you know, pray, pray for Israel, pray for Gaza, pray for all of us. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, this is bad enough if it remains a regional conflict. Um, man, the world's just a powder keg right now. And yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's so much, uh, there's so much in this world that just needs love and compassion. And, um, and being in, being in, uh, being in ministry, that's definitely what we try to bring. And so it's hard to, uh, to have a different perspective of, of a solution, um, to things now, but yeah, it's, uh, I think all we can do is just hope that the leadership in Israel has a, a modicum of mercy um, and that the, they have some ability to compose themselves and make the right choices that are going to provide security for their people with the least amount of, of innocent lives lost, which is what you traditionally see from the from the Israeli leadership. Um, and yeah, just prayers for prayers for those who are mourning the loss of individuals, um, from the attack, pray for the, for those in Gaza who are mourning the loss of individuals killed in the retaliatory strikes. Um, pray for those who are still hostage in Gaza. I mean, that's an ongoing thing right now. And, um, the atrocities that could be being committed against those individuals is just, you don't even want to think about it. Um, so prayer, prayers for them, um, prayers for the soldiers that are now on the front lines protecting their nation. I mean, I have, I have friends who are now been called up in the front line. So that's um, a scary thing to, to, to think about and not something we all expected a week and a half ago. Um, prayers. Yeah. Just prayers for Hamas, for the Hamas, like prayers for the Hamas individuals that they would have this desire for hatred um, and, and just, attacking others removed from them that they would just have the light of mercy and kindness and 
as a person in ministry, we pray that they that Jesus would encounter them and give them a solemn moment that they would uh, that they would just be encountered and brought to a realization of their of their state and, and surrender their lives to peace and love and mercy and help free those individuals and just man, wow, there's so many prayers needed. This, um, they're gonna want to figure out where they want to spend eternity quick, fast, in a hurry because this would be. <sighs> Uh, an interesting enough situation without the hostages, but in addition to the Israeli hostages that they're holding, they've got Americans, and uh, they're about to get all the smoke. You're you're about to meet some Americans that you don't understand that they exist, and they're bringing the thunder with them, and uh, yeah, they they they're gonna figure out whether they they got. Uh, they got eternity figured out right or not quick, fast and hurry. So they're going to figure it out. Yeah. The, uh, the Baba Yaga is not just in, uh, in John wick movies. They wear, they wear a, a red, white and blue patch and they, they go and they take care so, of business. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I'd love to see a peaceful solution. I'd love to see a quick cessation of violence. But in the meantime, while you're launching rockets and you're holding hostages and you're parading babies and toddlers around in your videos, all I have to say to those forces is happy hunting. Yeah. And I think that's as good a place as any to close out a podcast. So Gabe, genuinely appreciate you, brother, taking the time to do this. Listeners. Appreciate you sticking with us, listening in. I know it's not the uh, the most fun or entertaining topic, but I, I think this was uh, an important one. And always appreciate you guys tuning in, sticking it out with us. And uh, I won't do all the usual spiel, but hit up the website if you haven't, solid7podcast.com. All kinds of good stuff there, all kinds of cool ways to uh, support the podcast and what we're doing here. And uh, we appreciate any and all of that support. And with that, until next time, we're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces Way of Life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast.